And ladies and gentlemen of the jury, the prosecution is not going to get that man today. No. Because I'm going to get him. Report Doug Hagman flying solo tonight. Joe's out sick. Welcome to this broadcast. It is the Monday after the long Thanksgiving holiday. Hopefully, everyone had a great Thanksgiving. Of course, um, as is custom, uh, Friday, uh, work Friday, had a show up Friday, as well as uh, uh, work throughout the weekend in, in attempting to determine what's going on out there. It's, let me lead off with this. Since 1997, there have been 268 cases of sexual harassment in Congress, which have been settled with your tax dollars, my tax dollars, for $17,250,854, and they're all under seal. Unseal the deals. Let's do that. Hashtag unseal the deals. 20 years, 1997 through 2017, 268 cases of sexual harassment against the uh, members of Congress, the uh, pow- uh, perverse powers that are, $17,250,854. And my wife asked a good question. Who, who's paying this? Well, aside, obviously we are. Who's authorizing the payments and, and who's withholding the information? She, uh, you can tell she lives with a detective, right? So it's the office or the Congressional Office of Compliance, actually as I have learned, which was an office. Now, now listen to this. The Congressional Compl- uh, Office of Compliance was started back in 95 in order to add more transparency to Congress. How's that working out for us when they sealed the deals of 268 cases of sexual harassment? By the way, on Friday, um, Laura Loomer was on with Alex Jones. Was it Friday? I think it was. And uh, she had noted that uh, a... Young woman, 19 at the, the 19 currently, was going to come out with uh, additional allegations against a sitting member of Congress right now, male, female, I don't know. And at 4:30 in the morning, she received a telephone call saying, "Hey, you're under an NDA contract, non-disclosure agreement, so you can't do that." And at 4:30 a.m., there's no, you know, nothing to see here, folks. So you've got perversity within the powers perversity. But, you know, I, I just want to urge people to look beyond this. Look beyond the 264 cases. Well, what's going on here with, with, with respect to this perversity? It's the normalization of the abhorrent behavior that we've seen since Bill Clinton has been in office. Didn't Bill Clinton by himself redefine what is normal? It's okay for a, to, to get an intern in the Oval Office which became the oral office for a while, right? Remember that? And, of course, you know, it, it all depends on what is, is. So there's a lot of redefining of our moral um, and character integrity back in the 90s. What we're seeing today is just merely a, re- a consequence of that. The acceptance, the tolerance of that behavior, that's what we're seeing today. I got a letter today uh, from uh, a guy who said he's not going to support us any longer. You know why? Because we, I in particular, am so rough on homosexuals. Okay? Don't. 
Please, don't. Homosexuality, in my view, is not is not uh, in, in, inherent. It's it's not uh, you're not born a homosexual. It, it, it's a learned behavior. And if you look at the DSM, the diagnostic uh, manuals, uh, that uh, should tell you and how those have been redefined. Another letter today, interestingly enough, saying two letters in one day, saying, you know what. Um, I supported you in the past, and uh, because you support Alex Jones, I'm not going to support you anymore. It's like pile on Doug Day today. Don't. Don't. Because what we're seeing, look, there's too much going on today. I support Alex Jones. I support InfoWars. I support the mission that he is on. And uh, period. Can we afford to frag the very people who are on our side? No, we we can't. We cannot afford to to frag the truth tellers out there. Now we don't have to agree with them in in principle, or, or I'm sorry, we don't have to agree with them in terms of um, everything, 100 percent across the board. Do I agree with Alex Jones on 100 percent of things? No. Does he agree with me on 100 percent? No. No, absolutely not. But there's give and take there. So we have to. But but we are in the fight of our lives today. The power elite in Washington, D.C., the what is known as the shadow government or the permanent state, the, the federal bureaucracy that encompasses some 2.6 million individuals plus NGOs plus uh, related entities and federal, federal bureaucrats known as the deep state. We're fighting that Leviathan, and we need all the help we can get. And, and look, look, there's, we can't, we can't get the truth on Las Vegas. We can't get the truth on, uh, uh, on just about anything that's taking place. Where's the Department of Justice, Jeff Sessions, on Uranium One? Where's the uh, Department of Justice on the Clinton emails? Where, and I did my show today on, on these issues. The, there, Sessions is, is AWOL, absent, MIA. So I'm bringing this back to people like Alex Jones, for example. People like Rick Wiles. Do I agree with Rick on everything? No, of course not. Does he agree with me? Of course not. But we agree in principle that we're fighting a beast that's going to take down this country. So can, can we afford this this infighting? Of course not. Because that, that's the very tactic that our enemies are doing to us every single day. They're tearing us down. They're attempting to tear us down. They're going after our sponsors. Sean Hannity. I, I got an email saying, lay off the support of Sean Hannity on my own personal Twitter account, which I must, rec- must say, of course, the views are my own at Hagman PI, as opposed to Hagman Report. These are my own. Lay off the support of Hannity. You're just, you're just advancing the deep state. Really? Sean Hannity is the only one essentially at Fox News that has a permanent anchor spot that is ex- attempting to 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 lay out the permanent state and for that look what he gets so i'm not going to back off my support on him and i don't care if people contact all of our sponsors and and we take hits look i took a hit before in revenue from sponsors for saying that we were, would not stand in in uh with the uh, uh people who were 
who are supporting the Bergefell decision. I'm not going to compromise on my morals. I'm not going to compromise on, on our Judeo-Christian uh, ethics. And and I, I even have people who write to me and say, well, Judeo-Christian ethics, there is no such a thing. Judaism and Christianity, it's just some mis... Uh, really? That's what you're going to fight with? Really? You're going to pick apart that statement? That's what you want to... That's where you're going you're to put your flag? On that hill? That's where... Okay. So, anyway. You get the idea. 264 cases... There are 268 cases of sexual harassment, $17.25 million. Your tax dollars, my tax dollars, and we have no answers. And, of course, Joe uh, Barton comes out with uh, with an ab- abhorrent video. Representative Joe Barton, never Trumper, GOP. And, by the way, this is not a Republican-Democrat issue of this sexual perversion. This is this is a good versus evil issue. Joe Barton comes out with this uh, abhorrent video sent to this young woman. It was not a still image. Alex Jones had uh, played that or showed that and then took it down. He explains why. I saw it. I wasn't going to post it. What a sick puppy this guy is. Representative Joe Barton. I don't, I don't even care what his politics are. I really don't care. Get the hell out. And get him out. Can't get answers on, on Vegas. We got somebody maybe with us that will give us answers. Before we get to them, I want to mention too, those who do choose to support us. Uh, Eric wanted me to make sure I let everyone know that the $25 reward for the private live stream, the Patreon, uh, no, this is a notice and alert to all patrons on Patreon. We have a Patreon account. And the $25 reward for private live stream will take place this Sunday, December 3rd at 7 o'clock p.m. Eastern Time. Those of you who have partnered up with us at this level, you'll receive an email uh, of how to access this. And we'll walk you through how to connect uh, to the interactive live stream. For those that would like to join for the live stream, that's a reward. I guess at different levels you have rewards, and that's one of the rewards. And uh, you can talk to me and, and, you know, Take me to the woodshed as well, if you want. I can hold my own, but hey, it's up to you. Uh, you, you can, uh, uh, for those who would like to join the live stream that have not yet pledged the $25, you can do so by November 30th at 11.59 p.m. Eastern Time. Any patrons that pledge to this level after that will, of course, have to wait until the next month's live stream. And uh, what you can expect is an inter- interactive face-to-face group video conference. Again, this is not one-on-one. This is a group video conference. Group discussion, news, and current events, and you can ask uh, Joe and I anything you want. Um, bre- or boxers, there, so you don't have to ask that question. Uh, and there's a good chance the live stream will go longer than an hour. So, also the Hagman Forum is going to be ready to launch at the end of this week. Should be able, to, it should be able ready by the end of the week. The twenty-five and ten-dollar patrons will receive an invite by email to set up an account there. It's going to be fun because I, I'm, I'm looking forward to kind of being involved in this forum, in this private chat forum or this private message board forum. So that's coming up at the end of the week. With us now, Doug Papa, a guest that we had on last week, just an incredible, incredible guest. Uh, I, 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 did, did you hear from last week or from, was it last week or was it? It was probably a week and a half ago. I have to get the date. If you go to our video page, it's there, Doug Papa. His uh, Twitter, of course, is Doug underscore Papa, and his website is DougPapa.blogspot.com. Doug, welcome to the program, sir. 
Good evening, guys. How you doing, Joe and Doug? Nice to be again here. Well, good. Uh, Joe's out sick tonight, so it's just you and me, my friend. Just you and me. Okay. So okay. Um, so okay. Uh, I got to tell you, the last time that you were on, you uh, talked about uh, this is the very issue I, was, I opened up with, basically the perversion. Now, uh, right. what, what, what do we do with this? My goodness, what, we're seeing this. Just it's crazy, isn't it? Well, you know what happens when. Like I said the other day, when one woman or one complaining comes out, feel like they're not alone. Um, and, and that's going to eventually happen with the Stallone case. Um, there's no doubt about it. I, I see Stallone still on the Internet and his attorneys making comments, basically calling the victim a liar, saying it didn't happen. So in essence, he's not only calling the victim a liar, he's calling myself a liar. The police report, he's saying it's not genuine. He's calling the police officer, his name was mentioned, John in the Daily Mail article, so saying this stuff is not true. He's got Brigitte Nielsen coming out now saying it didn't happen because she was with them. And this other guy who was 15 years old at the time, David Mendenhall. I'm going to tell all three of these individuals this, okay? Um, neither one of you is telling the truth, okay? That's that's all I could say. Sylvester Stallone knows exactly what he did 30 years ago to that 16-year-old girl. Um, and to come out and say, listen, it didn't happen. Um, and have your ex-wife come out and say she was with you the whole time, I'm going to tell you right now, that is a flat-out, all-out lie. And um, she's got enough skeletons in her closet that will eventually fall out of the closet. But um, he's a liar. You know, that's what these people do. Um, you know, they come out and they start demeaning the victims. Um, you know, they, they run after them, derogatory remarks. It didn't happen. It didn't happen. Well, you know what? When there's more than one person coming out and there's been other allegations over the years, even with Sylvester Sloan and these other guys, you know, what are you going to say? So it is what it is. And I, what bothers me a lot with these things is it's, these are people in power. Either they're celebrities, they're politicians, um, they have the fame, they got the money and, um, you know, they can pay people off to tell them to keep their mouth shut and hire high price attorneys who will do whatever they can to try to track down dirt and stuff to ruin the reputation of the victims coming out. And to those attorneys that do that, and to those private investigators that do that, and there's a couple of ones that I'm not going to mention, you know who you are, you know, you're just as bad as the person that you you, you, you are um, representing. So that's what i got to say on that subject well, there. And you've been a police officer, a detective, you know, continuing course of criminal conduct of course, is something we look at and uh, something you look at. And, of course, it's right there. And it's these people don't stop. I, I don't believe a leopard changes its spots, and these people don't change their behavior. No, yeah. it'll, it'll continue. Yeah, exactly. It's not going to stop. Exactly. Now, we're not, what we've done is we've um, I've, I've just you've got the full hour. Okay, so let's talk. Uh, I know there's a number of issues or a couple of issues you want to talk about, uh, some information that you want to break on on this show, breaking information. So I'm going to let you lead with what you want to lead off with, and uh, I'll follow along here, and, and let's, let's have a discussion. Where do you want to start? Okay, the first thing I want to say is um, we haven't had a press conference out here, I don't think, since October 13th with the FBI or Sheriff Joe Lombardo, who runs the Las Vegas Metropolitan Police Department. Um, however, last Tuesday, um, before Thanksgiving, uh, Aaron Rouse, who's the special agent in charge of the Las Vegas field office, spoke to one of the local Nevada radio stations, and um, I believe it's here, it's KNPR-FM. And they were asking him about the motive why they believe Paddock did what he did. And that's the big question that people ask is why he did what he did. 
Okay, and this is what I'll read his exact comment here because I don't want to misquote him. Um, and this is what he said: um, Everyone, everyone wants to know why. FBI Special Agent Alan Rouse told the radio station, and then he said, "I believe when this is finalized, we're going to come as close as possible to answering that question." Um, and then it says here, when he was asked by the public, uh, when could the public expect the final report on the shooting, uh, Rouse declined to provide a timeline. And then he said, I doubt it's going to take a very, very long time based upon what I know today, he said, but I want to get it right. So at some point, he sounds like he's saying this, at some point in the future, in the near future, we're going to hear something on their report or to what Paddock's motives were. Um, that. His motives, to me, doesn't really concern me that much. I mean, he, he, he killed a bunch of people. You know, if he's connected to a terrorist organization, domestic or foreign, yes, I want to know that. But, um, you know, I'm more interested in, in the, the people who were killed and the police investigation. Now, um, the following Wednesday, which was last week before Thanksgiving, um, Cheryl Lombardo gave a statement to the Las Vegas Review-Journal and he said that based on their investigation thus far with the forensics, that over 1,100 rounds were fired by Stephen Paddock in the 10-minute period that he was firing out the windows from his 32nd floor suite at the Mandalay Bay. He also said that some of the weapons had jammed, I guess because they had tested some of the weapons. And he said here, quote, there was over 4,000 live rounds still in the room. He didn't elaborate on how many weapons jammed and what those weapons, the type of weapons that jammed. But, you know, this has always been one of the biggest things with me on this case is they originally said there were 23 firearms in that room that he brought in. And now the sheriff confirmed 4,000 rounds of ammunition, live ammunition, were found in the room after he allegedly shot himself. So that's always been a concern with me because... I don't understand to this day, and I'm sure that the police and the FBI may or may not know, is why he went through these elaborate procedures before he even fired out the window. Um, put cameras out in the hall. They said there were electronic devices inside the room, multiple laptops, cell phones, multiple cell phones. And just to note, there was allegedly, from what I hear, a cell phone charger that was in the room that didn't match any of the cell phones that were in the room. That, that's been out right. in the media floating around out here. So my thing is, you go through this elaborate procedure, you know, you barricade the fire stairwell door. I believe one of the cops said there were screws in the door so you couldn't come up from the outside stairwell, which was adjacent right to his door's front suite, the front door to his suite, excuse me. And he went through this elaborate procedure. He fires allegedly for 10 minutes out the window, and then they believe that he shot himself. Okay? All right. Maybe. Maybe it happened like that. But as an investigator, I have to ask myself, Why? Why did he go through the elaborate procedure? What made him stop and just all of a sudden blow his brains out when he has all these other weapons in the room? Now, I'm sure when the sheriff said some of the weapons were jammed, that not all 23 weapons in that room were jammed. That We know he had 23 weapons, according to what the police told us. And he had all this live ammunition. Right. As a matter of fact, when one of the cops was on 60 Minutes that entered the room, I'm going to bring up a point on that later, he said there was actually, I think it was said there was actually an assault rifle that was facing the door. So in other words, he can grab it real quick on the floor and, and shoot at cops coming in. So the big question to me is, why go through this elaborate procedure? Why after 10 minutes did he say, you know, if, if indeed that's the way it happened, uh, that's the end, I'm going to blow my brains out, when even the cops said on 60 Minutes he could have held us off for hours in a firefight. So that's the big question to me. I'm not so much concerned as why he did it, 
We did it for one of two reasons. Either somebody, you know, was involved with him and told him to do it, but the end result is whether you're acting alone, you're crazy. Nobody kills 58, 59 people and fires and wounds 500 people more. So the motive there is he's crazy, in my opinion. Uh, and that's not my, you know, I'm not, it's not a psychiatric term. I'm not a psychiatrist, a psychologist. I'm just saying that he's obviously nuts. He killed all those people. So sure. that's, that's what we got at this point. Now, what I want to bring up is, um, before I forget, I wrote 35 stories for the Baltimore Post exam, and obviously we can't talk in an hour, everything that's in there. But I broke three different things when I was writing for the Baltimore Post exam. I was writing those stories. The first thing I, I broke was that a SWAT officer fired his weapon into the room the night of the uh, when, when Paddock was in the room after they went into the they breached the door. Right. I broke that story. I was the only one in the country that broke that, and everybody picked it up about two or three weeks later. Second story I broke was that the Las Vegas Metropolitan Police Department had to borrow three armored vehicles from a private security company out here called Battlefield Vegas, and I was the first one to break that story. And we still don't know to this day, because nobody will talk when you call them up over there, is why the police department had to borrow armored vehicles from a private company. When I wrote my story, I raised the question that, um, do they not have enough equipment in this county to protect citizens on events like this, that they had to borrow three armored vehicles um, from this private company? Now, point, excuse me, point being on that is, I went down to Battlefield Vegas, and they would not talk to me. They said, we can't tell you anything. You need to, you know, refer to the police department, let's go to the police department. They have no comment. They say active investigation. Um, so they wouldn't tell me anything. I took some photographs down there of some of the armored vehicles I have. They have over 100 vehicles in Battlefield Vegas, and they have armored personnel carriers, hum Humvees, and, and tanks and all kinds of stuff. But they wouldn't tell me what actual vehicles they, that, uh, that was requested by the, the police department that night. And how I found out about that was, and that's why I got so involved in this case, the night the massacre happened, um, I was on the phone with, with somebody, and they, the kid came in and says there's a terrorist incident going on on the Strip. So I immediately hung up the phone, turned on the scanner out here, and I was listening to everything live as it was happening. So between October 1st and today, I must have listened to those police recordings because I recorded some of them, some of them I got from other sources, uh, over dozens and dozens of times. So it was very, you know, it, it was, to me, it was compelling when I was listening to it because one of the things I want to bring out is a, is a former police officer and cop is that, and I, I raised this issue in one of my stories, why was it that all the tactical communications that night were bring broadcast live for the whole world to hear? There was no encryption. And um, and people say, what's the big deal with that? I said, well, it's a big deal tactically from a police officer's standpoint because all the tactical communications, not only on the ground of where strike teams were going at the different casinos for two hours because there were shot calls coming in for active shooters in multiple locations for two hours after Paddock stopped firing a weapon. We could talk about that later. But my point being here is that inside the Mandalay Bay, all the movements of the police and the teams that went in, and they did a fantastic job getting in that hotel fast, okay, was all broadcasted for everybody to hear. What stairwells they were going in, you know, be careful for booby traps. We're in 300 stairwell. We're outside his door later on, they were saying. Even when you hear the, which was broadcasted, you know, on, on television later on, uh, the SWAT officer, when he was going to breach the door with explosive, he says, you know, we're going to breach the door. we got to pop the door. Um, and particularly something really important, and I'll talk about it later, is when he says, we have to pop this door. Yeah, because I heard that. We don't know. 
We don't know if he's in the room or he went somewhere else. Yeah. Uh, I'll get into that later because that's just an, that's just unbelievable to me. Thank so you. anyway, all these, all these tactical communications are being broadcast for everybody to hear. Now people ask me, you know, why do you keep harping on that, Doug? What is the big issue? Now several years ago, Metro changed their communication system. They had a big $45 million debacle, I believe, when Sheriff Joe Lombardo was uh, assistant sheriff, under sheriff. He was involved in buying a new radio system. It didn't work. It was called Skyview or something like that. It was $45 million waste of money. So they went out, they got a new system, and in short, it's, it's the P25 Phase 2 system that's out there. Now, I'm bringing it up because um, that basically made all analog police scatters that people and news people were listening to police communications obsolete because you have to have a scanner that particularly picks up phase two um, P25. So I'm bringing that up because when I was listening to it on the scanner that night, uh, another law enforcement officer, a friend of mine, called me up, and he said, you know, you, you li- yeah, we're listening to this, and he's listening. So I said, when did you go out and buy those scanners or expenses? There's only like two or three manufacturers on the market that make them, like $500. And he says, no. It's being broadcast on a couple of sites. One of them was Broadcastify on the internet. So I'm bringing that up because you didn't need it. You need You did not need to be in Las Vegas with a scanner listening to the tactical communications of what was going on that night. I'm trying. I'm saying this for a point, sir. You could have been in Afghanistan and Iraq and Russia, sitting in a cave somewhere with satellite television. Listening to, watching CNN as everything was going live, because CNN and all the news agencies were out here, you know, they were showing it live. And then you have your computer set up, your laptop, and you're listening to Broadcastify with all these tactical communications going on, which floor the stairwells are in, when they put explosives on the door. And my point being is because had this been an actual terrorist incident with multiple people involved, they would have had a sat phone at that location, and that guy would have been on the sat phone to his people out here saying, be careful, they're coming up, they're in the stairwell, they're right out the side of the door, they're going to put the explosives on. And had there been somebody else in that room with Paddock, if it was multiple people, they could have went out with a grenade and killed all those cops in the stairwell. My point being is, simple, is that those tactical communications should never have been broadcasted live for everybody to hear. Now, another thing they did there that night, okay, they advertised for the whole world that there's only four SWAT teams in Las Vegas because one of the officers came on. One of these are the commanders that are doing this over the radio and said when the FBI SWAT team gets here, the city of Henderson SWAT team, that's a separate city with the police department, and North Las Vegas, separate city, when their SWAT teams get here, have them go to the staging area. Somebody else comes on the radio, where's the staging area at? Russell Road on the boulevard. So all this is going across the radio, and everybody knows now there's only four SWAT teams in Clark County that could ever respond in case you have an incident, okay? And then the other thing they said was when the dispatcher came across the radio and said, units be advised, there's going to be three armored vehicles en route to the staging area, um, and they're going to be a pickup truck follow them, obviously because they're going to drop off the armored vehicles and somebody's going to pick up the drivers and leave, and that was broadcasted over. So now people thinking, okay, you know, there's only four SWAT teams in Clark County that can respond on, you know, a Mumbai-type attack, just using that as an example. And obviously, Metro doesn't have enough armored vehicles because they had to go out and they had to borrow armored vehicles from a private company. And I wrote a story about that, and that's very, very important to me because I said it in the story that if one of the richest tourists, if the Metro, Las Vegas Metro Police Department does not have enough armored vehicles to protect the citizens and tourists that come to this city, that when an emergency happens, like what happened that night, that they have to go out and borrow armored vehicles from a private company 
something is wrong with the administration of the police department. Whether it's the current administration or the previous administration, something is wrong there. And another thing you hear on the radio, too, is where some of the officers were requesting more rifles. When they say that, what they're asking for is police officers with with the AR-15 platform-type rifles. Talking to police officers, they tell me that um, not all the police officers in Metro and the patrol have those assault weapons in their vehicle. You know, they have shotguns and stuff, because if they want them, if they're not on a specialized team, they have to go out and purchase them themselves. And the department had made it so hard with so many rules and regulations to get those weapons. I mean, if you take it out of your car to put in your trunk, you got to do a report. I took it out and I held it, something like that. So not everybody, I mean, not all the patrol officers in Clark County, Las Vegas Mount Police Department, have, uh, you know, the assault weapons, I'll call it that, AR, you know, 15 platform type weapons or assault weapons in their vehicle. And, and that's, a, that's, a, that's a disgusting shame. And plus they got to go out and buy them. If they're not like on a SWAT team or a special team, they got to go out and buy those weapons themselves. And those weapons cost anywhere from 2000 and up. So, you know, on a policeman's salary, that bothers me as an ex-cop and an ex-citizen. If you don't have the equipment Amen. to roll out right away on an emergency, then, you know, what's going on with the leadership in the, in the police department? Very, very well so, said. Uh, Doug, I'm going to give you a, 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 a your, your uh, voice of rest there just momentarily. I just want to reintroduce you to our guests that are, or to our listeners who are coming into the, to the show. Top cop, at least, he, he's not going to tell you that, but he's detective of the year. A long history of, um, of public service as a police officer detective. Doug Papa is our guest. Follow him on Twitter, Doug Papa. I know I do. And, uh, we're, we're so glad to have him. And of course, he's got, uh, he writes for the uh, Baltimore Sun. And, uh, just go to his Twitter page. There you can get to his website as well, Doug Papa, uh, website. And of course, his writings for the, uh, paper as well. And he, he's talked with the topic right now is the inconsistencies in Las Vegas. And what he's known, he's brought up two good points. One being the live broadcast. And by the way, um, I was awakened during at some point during that time, and and uh, I was able to tune right in to to the live feed as he's saying. So if you're in Afghanistan or if you're in Iraq or some, it doesn't matter. You, you could hear everything going on. Is that is that right? Mm. And of course yeah. the you know. So uh, go ahead and continue, Doug. I just want to give you a little break. Okay. Go ahead. Yeah, there's a couple of things I want to hit on. I want to get out because I know we only got like a half hour left. Okay. Um, as a former criminal investigator. I'm going to make this statement, okay? When you are investigating a crime and you have a crime scene, the most important thing is to secure and the integrity of that crime scene, whether that crime scene is going to last an hour or days, as in this case, okay? Now, when someone compromises a crime scene, that, depending on what state you're in, that could be interfering with the criminal investigation. It could be obstruction of justice, okay? Now, you're asking me, People, are, why are you bring it up? And I'll tell you, because the next day, on October third, and the shooting happened on October first, um, crime scene photographs were released to the press all over the country. They went all over the world. Um, crime scene photographs showing Paddock's dead body, um, his the blood coming out of his head, what the room looked like, the weapons. You all see them. Those are the crime scene photographs. Okay. Now, I'm going to say this as breaking news on the Hagman report, okay? Two of the photographs of the weapons that first aired on television out of Fox, excuse me, Fox 25 Boston, okay? There were two photographs of the rifles that was leaked by a police department source. Now, 
couple of weeks ago, Sheriff Joe Lombardo was being interviewed out here by a local reporter, and I get to some of the stuff that he said that just didn't make any sense. But when they asked about that, he said, well, you know, they're probably never going to be able to find out because 50, about 50 people were in the chain of those photographs, so we're never going to be able to find out. Now, that was just like two, three weeks ago. Now, when it originally happened right after the shooting, you can go back and look at the YouTube press conferences, he was pretty ticked off because they said, are those genuine photographs? And he said, yes, those are crime scene photographs, and I'm not too happy about it. So why am I bringing this up? Because I received information that two of the photographs that went to a reporter at Fox 25 in Boston came from a command personnel. Listen to what I just said. Not a line officer. Command personnel from the Las Vegas Metropolitan Police Department. And it went to a reporter who this person when she was a reporter out here years ago, was romantically involved with, okay? Now, I was told by another reporter the other day that those crime scene photographs that were leaked to a reporter, they were worth about $10,000 a photograph. Now, I have no information that this person that released those at least two photographs to Boston 25 got paid for it, but, but he did, okay? And this was a command personnel within the Las Vegas Metropolitan Police Department and he compromised a major homicide investigation. Not just any homicide investigation, that's bad enough, but the worst mass shooting in United States history, he compromised that investigation. So did any other personnel, whether it was command or line level, that released the other crime scene photographs that hit the news within two days, one or two days after the event. Now, okay, that hallway up on the 32nd floor of Mandalay Bay was sealed as a crime scene because when he, you know, that the whole, not the room was a crime scene too, but the hallway was because he shot, you know, outside the door when he hit Campos, allegedly hit Campos and then the leg and everything. So the whole hallway was blocked. And I originally thought it was guarded by Mandalay Bay security, but I heard the other day from a source that it was not. It was Las Vegas Metropolitan Police Department officers who were sealing that hall, basically guarding the hall for, you know, for days because it was an active crime scene. Okay. Somebody, let a female reporter from Los Angeles into that crime scene area. And she put her camera into the door and took photographs of whatever she can reach with a hand going to the door. Those are public, were publicized all over the internet. So you have personnel from the Las Vegas Metro Police Department compromising the worst mass shooting in U.S. history thus far, the criminal homicide investigation of that. And it's a total disgrace that that actually happened okay Amen. now i want i want to bring up another another point over here okay um because when i call up metro and was asking them questions on all the stories i was right of course they active investigation i hang up the phone they're not going to tell you anything okay joe lombardo and under sheriff kevin mcmahill told the press and you go back and look at the press conferences that the swat team went into the room okay when they breached the door. Now, that is a lie. Okay? We, it didn't happen. Okay? One SWAT officer went in that room. His name was Levi Hancock. He's the gentleman, I believe you hear on the radio, said he was going to breach the door. He's the one that on 60 minutes, the four officers who were in, uh, were in, the, in there, the three of those officers went into the room with him, said he had the explosives on him, he went in. Now, for a week, they were telling us the SWAT team went in. Now, the Las Vegas Metron Police Department has a, from what I understand, a 40-member SWAT team 
that's split up into two teams, where they call it red, yellow, blue, green, whatever, but there's two, te- two teams, 40 members total on the entire team, okay? They did not breach that room until an hour and five minutes after Paddock fired his last shot, okay? And the officers that, like I said, when they responded to the Mandalay Bay, they got there fast. They were up in that stairwell within minutes after he stopped firing, but they were told to hold off until SWAT got there and made a plan. Well, SWAT never got there, okay? A SWAT team is a team. There's no I in team. There was no team in that hallway of SWAT. There was one SWAT officer. That was Levi Hancock. So the following Monday, excuse me, the following Sunday after the shooting, they put these four guys on 60 minutes, okay? One of them, I think his name was uh, Casey Clarkson. He, he was not one of the bosses that breached the room. He was, he got hit in the neck. He stayed to help people in the concert venue. And all those cops that night, and I wrote a whole story on this, all those police officers from Metro that were in that concert venue, okay, to me, were absolute heroes. Okay, when you listen to the radio traffic, I did a whole story on this. You can go back and read the stories on the Baltimore Post Examiner. They were putting people in patrol cars. They were putting tourniquets on people. They were just absolutely amazing. And I, and I got you know if they were all here today, I'd shake every single one of the one of them hands. But you know, get back to this other thing. Where was the 40 member Las Vegas Metro Police Department SWAT team the night of the worst mass shooting in modern American history? They were not in the stairwell. Because an hour and five minutes later, the people who went into that room were Levi Hancock, who breached the door with explosives, and then the two canine officers, I think the name was Bitsko and Newton, that were on 60 Minutes, and then Officer Donaldson, who was a gang detective, He was they were all on 60 Minutes. Now, I thought that Monday morning that there would be satellite trucks parked outside of Metro headquarters on down here on Martin Luther King Boulevard. Nothing. Because I would want to know this from Sheriff Lombardo. Why, after an hour and five minutes, one of your SWAT guys, all those guys that went in that room that night were heroes, because you don't know what you're facing when you go in there. You don't know if you paddock. They had no idea paddock was paddock. They didn't know if there was 20 guys in that room. But he had to go in without a SWAT team. And I heard through sources that he was a little, excuse me, he was a little concerned about that, because he had to go in with basically an ad hoc team of police officers that he never worked with. Not to say those guys wouldn't experience and go to do whatever they had to do to get into the room, but SWAT trains together as a team for a reason. I was on a SWAT team when I was on the military police in the, in, in the Army. You, you train with those team members because you all know how they're going to react and where everybody's going to go when you go in. So the night of the worst mass shooting in U.S. history, the SWAT team in Vegas, not even five other guys could have made it into that stairwell an hour and five minutes where Levi Hancock had to use patrol officers, canine and patrol officers to go in that room. Sheriff Lombardo hasn't spoken about that, and nobody's even asked him about that. I call up and I ask to hang up the phone with Ken's active investigation. So to me, um, that that is a major, major, major problem. Where were they? Were they somewhere else? Um, how come they weren't into the room? Okay, now get on another subject because I want to cover all these subjects. Stephen Paddock fired out that window for 10 minutes, and he was not counted by uh, either a counter sniper or any type of fire, at least to get him away from the window. Um, my question would be, why, why was that? Because there's been enough incidences in this country where you've had uh, snipers from elevated positions shooting down at crowds or people in the street. Okay? Now, after 9-11, the 9-11 report, which a lot of it, they made a lot of, I think a lot of it was just a nonsense, but, but one of the things they came out and they said, um, it was a failure of imagination. Well, 
when I wrote my story and said that incompetence led to the Las Vegas massacre, I got all this hate mail. And incompetence at a command level, because nobody could have even thought that, hey, we got 22,000 people on a corner in an open venue. Across the street, we have, and behind them, we have high-rise towers of Las Vegas hotels, the Mandalay Bay across the street, you have the Luxor, you have the Tropicana, and nobody said, what if somebody decides to go up there and start shooting down? Are we ready for that? Um, they have helicopters out here. The heli- police helicopters have FLIR on them. You know, why couldn't they have snipers on there ready to go? And, you know, the, the airport was right next to that, okay? They obviously didn't that night, and and that bothers me because um, I think lives could have been saved at least if somebody was there to identify that window as fast as they could, the windows he was firing out of, and, no, not to hit him, but just to lay some fire down to keep him from firing out. And we know that didn't happen, and people got killed. Now, the other side of that is the casinos, okay, and I put in my story. Since 9-11, all Las Vegas casinos were put on notice, both by Homeland Security and the FBI, because I was director at two different properties, and I saw the bulletins coming in from Homeland Security, that Las Vegas has been a target since 9-11 and even before of terrorist organizations. There's magazines that are out there online. There's one that's called Inspire, one's called, what's called Palestine, when they basically tell their jihadists in this country is to go over and, and you know, target Las Vegas and other areas. Las Vegas has been mentioned, okay? So now since 9-11, you got, what, 15 years, okay? Homeland Security, I went to a lot of these schools. Some of these things are hanging on the wall over here. Active shooter, initial law enforcement response to suicide bomb attacks. When I went to those courses with my guys, my team from Riviera, my supervisors, okay, there were management personnel and other security personnel for just about every casino in Las Vegas. So everybody knew what Homeland Security was telling you. Be aware of active shooters. Be aware of Mumbai-type attacks. They even came out and said years ago that um, critical infrastructure, including hotels, specifically in Las Vegas, should have their own security response team to be able to act immediately in an active shooter incident so you can at least suppress the guy's fire, the gunman's fire, until police get there. Because every second that goes by, bodies are stacking up. So Paddock was allowed to bring 23 firearms, thousands of rounds of ammunition and magazines into the Mandalay Bay Nobody stopped. It was, you know, there was no security measures in place that could have caught that. And people say, well, yes, they don't want to do security measures because it's a hassle to the customers. Tell that to the dead people. Green luggage. They didn't want to do it. They do it at airports. They say it'll take too much time. Okay. You want to do something real simple? You have canine teams, explosive detection teams, because if an explosive detection team was rolling by that cart that had all that weapons and ammunition on it, those weapons were fired. The ammunition was touched with the explosive residue. The explosive canine team would have more than likely would have hit on that stuff. None of that was in place. So he was allowed to bring all that stuff into his room. And I say allowed because that's exactly what he did. He knew. He knew. He's been in casinos. He's been gambling. He knew you can bring whatever you want into a room. Nobody's going to check luggage. They don't do any type of screening like they do at the airport. But what makes it even worse in this case is that his car that was parked out in valet had explosive materials in it. I think there was 50 pounds, they said, or something, a tannerite or something like that, okay? Now, what if that car just didn't have explosives in the car? It was an IED. Again, that car rolled right into valet because there was no canines patrolling that would have hit on the explosives that were in that car. 
That's my point. So when they come out and they say, you know, there's nothing that the casinos could have done because, you know, it's a hassle to the guest. Now, I'm going to tell you this, okay? Um, you can rest assured that somewhere in the world of this country, there isn't one or a group of people who are studying this whole event that happened on October 1st. And they're listening and studying the radio traffic, which is still available online. You can play it back a thousand times on the Internet. They're listening to the traffic. They're listening to how the tactics of the police that night, on these, on, especially when these calls came in, on, and I'll get to that in a second. But what I'm saying is people are studying this, okay? And 15 years almost since 9-11, and the casinos haven't basically done anything because it's never going to happen. After Mumbai, India attack, more bulletins came out from Homeland Security. You need to hear because a terrorist attack inside a casino, say, is only going to happen two ways. It's either going to be an active shooter or it's going to be suicide bomber. So do you have any procedures in place to detect that type of, you know, uh, explosives or, or weapons coming in your casino? Do you have, uh, you know, an immediate reaction force? Not 5, 10, 15 minutes later after the police get there or longer, but your own security force. So those are the issues that should have been done way before this thing took, took place. And, and maybe lives would have been saved at night or maybe you wouldn't have the, the amount of the, the dead bodies and the amount of injuries that we had over there in the concert venue. Now, um, I know I'm talking fast. I only see like I got 15 minutes. I want to bring up something else. After Paddock stopped firing, the Las Vegas Metropolitan Police Department dispatcher was putting out calls for active shooters at multiple properties. This went on for two hours. Now, Joe Lombardo, the sheriff, was on one of the uh, being interviewed the other day, and, and he said this, that to them, you know, they went out and they, they made it seem like it was nothing. They went on, they quelled it, we checked, there was nobody there. But these things went out for um, well over two hours after Paddock had stopped firing. Active shooter at the New York, New York. Suspect from the Mandalay Bay or something going down the escalator at Luxor. Active shooter now at the Tropicana. Active, uh, shots fired at Aria. Shots fired at Bellagio. Guy going in with the, the assault weapon in the back door of Bellagio. These were going on every 10, 15 minutes. They were sending strike teams, which were groups, three or more police officers, to all these locations to try to find out what the heck was going on. A lot of these calls were also coming from police and fire personnel themselves. Now, I don't know what they heard, but Sheriff Lombardo said, what, what, I'm assuming what people heard, to paraphrase what he said, was because they saw people with blood on and assumed there was a firefight. Well, I'm going to say this, okay? I don't know what happened to those other properties. I just heard what was I listening to the radio traffic that night is that this. They were receiving multiple calls being broadcasted from the police dispatcher to police officers to send units to this hotel and this hotel long time after. A lot of this stuff started at about 10.45 and went on for you know well within two hours from one property to another. My question is this, okay? to the police department, to Sheriff LeBard, because nobody brings these questions up to him. Has all that been investigated? Who was calling in all these calls? Now, obviously, some of them are going to be yes. There's going to be some people that have maybe have heard shots, but Paddock had stopped firing. So was this one person that was calling all these calls? Was it a group of the same voices? Was this done because possibility that maybe something else was supposed to happen that night and they were trying to spread out the forces of the police? Or was it done because somebody took advantage of the situation and said, We'll start calling these things. We'll see how they react in case maybe we do it next time. It was so much of a concern, sir, that on the radio, I believe one of the SWAT commanders actually went on there and said, be careful that they're not trying to split up our forces. 
Okay, I listened to the, I wrote 35 stories on this, and I nitpicked every transmission that I heard and every time the sheriff made a statement. So, you know, that's a whole other ball game is why all these shot calls were coming in when nobody was firing weapons. There was even one I heard on the other day from the fire dispatch. It was about an hour and 10 minutes after Paddock stopped firing. And this is what she says over the fire radio, not the police radio, I'm talking about the fire channel. She's talking to one of the captains, one of the battalion guys, and she says, I have the, the spouse of one of our members up on the roof-level bar of Mandalay Bay and just saying they have an active shooter up there, okay? This is well over an hour, 15 minutes after Paddock stopped firing. And then he goes back to says, who is it? She said, a spouse of one of our members. And they said, we'll have to contact Metro. I, I haven't heard anything in the paper about what that was all about. And another thing that was going on that night is officers inside the venue were actually calling in that they had active shooters in the venue. Well, you could put that to say, okay, maybe they didn't know where the shots were coming from. You know, well, you know, a trained police officer would probably know whether, because they said, looks like we have shots coming out of Mandalay Bay on the 32nd floor, but they were actually calling and saying we have active shooters inside the venue. Okay, that came out. What, that, what, that's the sound that they heard from across the street? Maybe, maybe not. But then another interesting transmission happens over the police radio is this. We hear one of the officers say the suspect is headed to an RV near Coval Lane in Tropicana. Okay, the suspect. What suspect? And then the next thing you hear is a female police officer say, I have my shotgun deployed at the back window of this RV. Okay, and then all of a sudden you don't hear anything. Whether they switch to a you know a, uh, an encrypted channel or something, I want to know what that incident was about. And why am I bringing it up? Because when I was reviewing the fire channel uh, communications, which I started to do last week, you hear the fire, um, one of the people come across, one of the firemen come across the radio, and they said, notify Metro, you have one of their officers limping, chasing a guy in fatigues near this RV. And so I put that together with the transmission from the police, and I haven't heard nothing from the local media out here about what that incident was about. Was it, it, was, it was a mistake? But who were they chasing, and why did they have this RV surrounded? When they called the guy running, they said, people are telling me, he's a suspect, and he's got a black bag, and then they surrounded this RV, and all this. I know i got a couple of minutes. I want to specifically say something here. I'm going to read a, a, a direct quote. Okay? On October, for a, for a month, Sheriff Lombardo, when I broke the story that a SWAT officer fired a weapon in the room, didn't come out and say nothing until about 24 days after I broke the story. And then he says, well, yeah, it's under investigation, but um, and that's all he says. A SWAT officer fired his weapon. Okay, we haven't known of it. Who, who fired? What type of weapon was it? Where did the round of rounds go? We still do not know. Now, I also broke this story, and I only got 10 minutes left, and this is very important. I was told that the homicide division was pulled from the investigation of the Paddock shooting. Listen to what I just said. The homicide division of the Las Vegas Metro Police Department was pulled off the investigation of the worst mass shooting in modern American history. And it was turned over to a group called the Force Investigating Team, or FIT. Okay, FIT, the Force Investigating Team, they investigate officer-involved shootings and officer-involved use of force. Okay, so the big question here, and Sheriff Lombardo has never mentioned it, and nobody's even asked him about this, is why was Homicide Division, if true, and my information came from police officers, so I know it's true, and I'll tell you something else how I know it's true also, is that why were they pulled off the worst mass shooting investigation in modern American history? And like 
who the hell is investigating the dead bodies and the suicide of Paddock? Because homicide investigators investigate suicides to make sure it's a suicide and not a homicide. So if they were indeed pulled off the case, and my information from inside sources that, that, that it was, okay, why was that? Now I'm going to tell you something else. The force investigating team does not answer to the same bureau commander that the homicide division answers to. They answer to the bureau commander of something called the public accountability thing. Well, guess who the commander is of that unit? Captain Kelly McMahill, who is the wife of the number two person running the Las Vegas Metropolitan Police Department under Sheriff Kevin McMahill. Now, to me, that sounds a little bizarre, okay? And I can't get any answers. Now, I'm going to tell you how, how I know that's true, that statement, because last week, before Thanksgiving, here's the, here's the email. You can't see it. But that's an email, and I can't even believe that they did this. This is from the Internal Affairs Bureau of the Las Vegas Metropolitan Police Department to me. And the detective, I'm not going to mention his name, but the detective says he wants to talk to me about some of the articles that I wrote for the Baltimore Post Examiner. He wants to know who my sources were, okay? Specifically when I said that the force investigation team was working the case and homicide was pulled off it. That's what he wanted. I wasn't going to call him back because I never heard of this before where a police will call up an investigative journalist and want their sources. So I said, no, I'll call him back. His line was recorded. My line was recorded. Now, what do you want? He says, I was, you know, tasked with doing the investigation, long story short, and we read your story, and you said that a retired police officer told you that the uh, homicide was pulled off. And um, and I said, what did you want? He says, well, I want to know who your sources are to make sure they're actually retired personnel and not active duty. Well, you know, you just told me in the email it was retired, so why even call me up? He said, we're not concerned with the retired personnel, and my, my people have talked to me. He says, that's a bunch of nonsense. Yes, they were, because the sheriff has the power to pull people's, um, what do you call it, the, uh, you know, the retirement stuff, the badges and stuff like that, and the authorization to carry a concealed weapon. So I didn't tell him anything. And then he says, well, can you at least tell me this? But you say in your story that you were told by the homicide division and, and I, they were. The Homicide Division of the Las Vegas Metropolitan Police Department told me when I called up they were not involved in the investigation. The force investigation team was. And I put that in my story. You can read it online at the Baltimore Post Examiner. Okay? Now, he wants to know who in the Homicide Division told you that, told me that. Was it the person answered the phone? I said, the Homicide Division. So that's where that conversation, it went nowhere. So just that conversation alone confirmed to me, hey, yeah, Force investigating team is definitely, otherwise they would have said, well, he's lying in the story. It's no big deal, so who cares? So that's what's going on. So we have the worst mass shooting in modern American history, and Homicide Division um, was pulled off the case and given to the force investigating team. My point is this. Why were they investigating that when no officer used force or fired their weapon at Paddock? Now, somebody said, well, maybe they're investigating the discharge of the weapon. Okay, we haven't heard anything on that. It doesn't take, yesterday was eight weeks since the shooting, okay? We haven't heard anything on that investigation. So that would, that's a five-minute investigation. Officer, did you trip? I mean, accidental discharges happen, okay? But that does not explain why homicide was pulled off the case. What is, what is the force investigating team investigating? Is it something simple as they investigating the discharge of the weapon? But then who investigated the suicide to make sure it was a suicide and not a homicide? There may be some very simple answers to this, but from the start, Sheriff Lombardo has given false, misleading, and deceptive answers on a lot of this stuff. Now, I want to come to this. I've only got a couple of seconds left, Dan. I want to read uh, this. Uh, Doug, I, I've, I've made arrangements. We're going to skip the top of the hour break. You've got, uh, I'm gonna, you've got another 
10, 10 minutes. Okay. On, on November 2nd, um, Sheriff Lombardo gave an interview to KLS-TV reporter, sat down with him, okay? And that's an investigative journalist, okay? I can say anything about him, but I just want I just want to read stuff, and I'll read it verbatim because I don't want anybody getting calls from people saying that's not exactly what he said, okay? Now, he says this. It was hard to determine, this is Lombardo, where the shots were coming from. Uh, once it was evaluated, it was coming from the Mandalay Bay, as you can imagine how hard it would be to pinpoint the room from the outside and, and blah, blah, blah. Okay? Why am I bringing that up? Because from the start of this investigation, something was wrong. It took him two weeks to figure out that Paddock didn't check in on the 28th, but then he checked in on the 25th, and he was in the room almost a week before he started firing. Why it took him that long to figure it out? I don't know. I said in one of my stories, maybe it was an inept investigation, but who knows, okay? Then they changed the timeline three weeks, three different times. The first thing Sheriff Lombardo and under Sheriff Kevin McMahill said at press conferences was that Jesus Campos, the Mandalay Bay security officer who was unarmed, um, was shot when he interrupted Paddock firing at the crowd, and they called him a hero. That's the first thing that went out. And then a week later... Sheriff Lombardo comes out and says, no, no, that's not true. He was now shot, we believe, six minutes before Paddock stopped firing. And then the next one that comes out the next week is, no, now we looked at some stuff, and now he was shot at about the same time or right when Paddock started firing. Okay? And everybody started going crazy about different theories because that would have helped Mandalay Bay, MGM Resorts International, that owns Mandalay Bay, in a, in a civil suit, because if they knew six minutes before ahead of time, then why did, um, why didn't, was, was, why did it take so long for Metro to know that the shots were coming from room, uh, from 30, you know, 135 on the 32nd floor? Part of this, there's just so much stuff of this. But then, you know, Sheriff Lombardo goes on on that interview and he says, um, let me find a paper here. Okay. He's talking to the reporter and he says, because originally he said when he was getting criticized within the first week, when everybody across the world was saying, why did it take the SWAT team an hour and five minutes to breach that door? Well, we now know there was no SWAT team. It was one SWAT member with an ad hoc team of patrol officers that went into the room. So he came out and he said, well, once Paddock stopped firing, it became a barricaded suspect. Okay? And my response in my stories, that's a bunch of BS. Because they never made telephone contact with him. They never had verbal communication with him. So they didn't even know he was in the room. And how do we know that? Because the guy actually gets on the radio, the SWAT officer, and says, we have to breach this room now, an hour and five minutes later, because we have to pop this door, is what he said, to see if he's still in here or he went somewhere else. So they didn't even know the guy may have been in the room. So an hour and five minutes, they're in the hall figuring how they're going to breach the door when Paddock could have been down on the strip, you know, doing more havoc. It didn't turn out that way, but they did not know that that night, and that's my point. Now, the sheriff said to this reporter on this interview that, the reason why, this is what he says on November 2nd, okay? He says, we had to get into that room as fast as we could because we didn't want him reloading magazines or an opening fire on the crowd. That's an all-out BS lie because they didn't go into the room immediately. They waited in that hall for an hour and five minutes because the patrol officers, who I know wanted to go into that room, were told, no, stand by and wait for SWAT to make a plan. Well, SWAT never showed except one officer. Then Sheriff Lombardo goes on in the interview and he says, but you got to understand something, talking to the reporter. This is this just blew me away. Had he opened fire again, 
we would have breached the door immediately. Well, how long does it take you to breach a door? Hopefully the explosive works, a couple of seconds, 50, 20 seconds. In the meanwhile, Paddock is killing more people. So this came from the highest law enforcement officer, the head of the Las Vegas Metropolitan Police Department. You can go online and look at that interview. It's KLS-TV. You get his exact words in there. I wrote a story about it. And this is some stuff that I heard. I heard that was just unbelievable to me, that a police officer, anybody, let alone the head of the police department, would say, well, you know what, we would have waited till if he started firing again, we would have immediately went into the room. So in other words, once he started killing and shooting more people, then we would have breached the door. But the other statement that he said right before that is that we wanted to go in immediately because we wanted to make sure he wasn't reloading magazines to open fire again. But they did not do that. That is a lie. They waited one hour and five minutes to go in. And then early on, within the second week, he was congratulating MGM Resort Security because he said, that's how we engage the suspect so fast. That is a bold-faced lie. They never, first of all, they didn't engage anybody fast. They waited an hour and five minutes, and allegedly he's dead when they go in. Who were they engaging? They never engaged anybody. He was dead on the floor when they went in. So I know I'm talking real fast. I want to get a lot of this stuff in. There's a lot more stuff here I I don't have time to talk about. But from the start, this investigation was a mess, okay? And it was made more of a mess because Joe Lombardo, the sheriff, kept talking to the press. He even said at one time, sir, he said, he says, you know, I gave out unverified information because they want to basically appease the public, okay? Unverified information is false speculation and rumor. You don't give that out to the public. We don't want to know that. We want to know facts. And if you don't know anything that you can't talk about it, what he should have said from the start is this. I'm not talking about this investigation. The FBI didn't talk about it, okay, until it's all done. If you want to know about the people who were killed, the fire guy will talk about it. But every time this guy held a press conference, I'm listening to what he's saying, and I'm writing notes, countering something and contradicting himself that he said at the previous one. Both him and Kevin McMahill is under sheriff, at different times, gave false, misleading, and deceptive answers to the press about stuff that just was not true. So, um, like I said, I got a ton of papers here to back up, but if anybody wants to read, there are 35 stories on the Baltimore Post Examiner. Pull the tab down under my name. You can read and analyze it. All those, all that stuff came from me analyzing police recordings from that night and listening to statements made by police officials. And I say police officials, we're talking about the upper echelon of the, of the Las Vegas Metro Police Department. So I'm talking fast, people, because I wanted to get as much stuff out as I can. You know, yes. This could is incredible. Paddock, yeah, you got three minutes. Go, go Paddock, ahead, three minutes. Okay. Could Paddock have acted alone? Yes. Could he brought those ones? Yes. But what they did by giving this false and misleading information to the public and all the speculation, all of a sudden that spawned all types of conspiracy theories. Because John F. Kennedy said something, you know, secrecy shouldn't exist in a a democracy, okay? When you have the worst mass shooting in U.S. history and you have the police giving out information that's deceptive or total false or an all-out lie, and you expect the, the people who are knowledgeable in this to say, you know what, yeah, that, I, I buy that, what he's saying, okay? I didn't buy a lot of stuff. And I'll say this as a former, and I'm ashamed to say this as a former cop, I would not believe one thing that comes out now, either from MGM Resorts International, the Las Vegas Metro Police Department, or the FBI, unless I sit down myself 
with a bunch of other experts and independently verify, because we haven't seen one piece of document to verify anything that MGM Resorts International or Sheriff Joe Lombardo has said at any one press conferences. We, nobody has listened to tapes. We haven't seen any documents, the falsified Mandalay Bay security report that the basing the time of the shooting happened. Somebody manually entered the wrong report. Very politically correct way of saying they falsified the Mandalay Bay security dispatch log. There's so much stuff on this stuff, sir. I've been doing this since the night of the shooting, um, just because I'm an ex-cop and I'm basically retired, and this this was my this was my job to do, so I can get at least something out for these people that were killed and the families of the survivors that were in there. Because right now, there's something really wrong with this investigation, and to this point, I do not know what it is. So could, could the uh, and uh, uh, Doug, I want to thank you because uh, now you're. That's Doug Papa, top cop. Uh, th- those are my words uh, to me, a hero, detective of the year back in uh, back in the day. But um, this is a guy. This is a police officer who, uh, if if I were a cop, I'd want on my six. Uh, he knows what he's talking about, and a crack investigator as well. Doug, uh, a final question here: To what extent has the FBI taken over, and hence um, uh, constricted the flow of information uh, on this investigation? Okay, um, a lot of people ask me that. I said, I don't know. I know they haven't talked about it except the first interview that Aaron Rouse gave that, you know, when he, right after the interview, or excuse me, right after the shooting came out and said, we, we, we haven't found them connected to any groups. And I, I'm telling myself, wow, that was extremely fast. And I'll say this real quick, real quick. After the terrorist incident in New York City with the, the guy from Uzbekistan, um, within hours, they knew everything about this guy. They knew his family and next on where he came from. They knew his house. They were doing raids and all this type of stuff. His whole life history was all over the news. They knew everything about that guy within hours. Now, it's been two months since this massacre in, in Las Vegas. It's the worst mass shooting in modern American history, and we still basically know nothing. They haven't released anything, and they haven't released one piece of documentary evidence any tapes from either the security dispatch at Mandalay Bay or the police department, crime scene photographs, nothing but that, to corroborate anything that Lombardo or Mayhill have said at these press conferences. And as a former investigator, I don't believe anybody. I want to see this stuff myself, and I think it all needs to be, when it, if, it all, if it ever comes out, it all needs to be independently verified by experts. Everything, the forensics, everything, blood spatter in the room, I, everything, because right now, it's 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 really sad of how this investigation was handled from the start. Now it may have been handled great, but according to the head of the Las Vegas Mountain Police Department, it made his department look inept, and that's what bothers me because I work with Metro detectives for years, 20 years out here, homicide guys, homeland security, and they're some of the best detectives I work with. So I really don't know what the hell's going on in the Las Vegas Metropolitan Police Department well, well, Doug, in this case. Uh, Doug Papa, we're out of time, but I'm, I'm, I appreciate the updates, the exclusive information, by the way, and I apologize uh, for misstating. That's the Baltimore Post Examiner for those people. Baltimore Post Examiner, the link will be in our program description. A lot of information. People are hungry for information about this, and, and you are the guy to bring it out, and I thank you because we have not heard much of this before. Now, there's speculation, but not to the extent that you brought this out. Thank you for doing it. Please, would you come back and, and continue this, uh, uh, this uh, giving information about this? Would you, would you, would you mind doing that? 
No problem, um, Doug. Anytime you want to right. back on, and uh, we can talk about this and, and some other stuff. On you're, you're doing an incredible job. We thank you. We salute you, and we appreciate you, your dedication to the truth. Thank you so much, Doug Papa. And, of course, follow him on Twitter. Uh, please follow him on Twitter because the inf- this information is crucial. And, Doug, thank you so much. All no right. problem. Thanks All a lot. Right, brother, thank you. And, and, that, right, that's, that's and, folks, that's what a real cop that, that's a real cop. That's a real police detective. That's what you just heard. You're not going to hear. Um, you're not going to hear on in the corporate media. This is how these. Uh, the, that's real. This is real. Do I have to say that again? This is real. And you know, if we were sitting around a table, a conference table, I guarantee you, the conversation would go the same way. You just got his historic insight by a top cop by Doug Papa as to how these things go. And I've sat in enough uh, uh, police-type meetings to understand. And uh, he's right on the money with this. So our thanks go to Doug Papa. We're going to have him back. Thank you so much, Bill McIntosh of Casa Media. Am I right, John? Yeah. Okay, thank you. All right. Uh, Bill Bill McIntosh of Casa Media. And by the way, any uh, speaker of Casa Media is the place to go. Also want to thank you, the listener, for tuning in to this program because you're not going to hear this elsewhere or if you do it's going to be a very watered down version notice I, I stayed out of his way because when you you have a police officer a detective at that level talking you shut up i shut up i listen i want to hear what he's got to say and some very important information that the revelation about uh, no swat team no swat team two swat teams in vegas 220 no swat team Go back and listen to that. And please, do me a favor. Share that interview with everyone you know. Share it on social networking. Tomorrow, the um, the video, that interview will be segmented and will be on our channel. And I would urge everyone to share that with that segmented interview with everyone. Because, again, this is important information. By the way, a fifth, or actually a tenth, uh, Las Vegas survivor mysteriously dies in a hit and run. Have you heard about that? A fifth person. Well, look, I, I've got, I've got the names of ten people here. Um, it's being reported as the fifth person. This is uh, November twenty sixth, of course, on Sunday. But the uh, um, the most recent Las Vegas survivor to uh, to meet an early and violent demise. Uh, let me make sure I get the name right here. Roy McClellan, fifty two. This was a hit and run. Now, look, I don't know what's going on, but but you heard Doug Papa. I don't believe anybody, and and that's that's the police officer saying that. I don't believe anybody. Same way, I don't believe anybody. I want to investigate, you know, myself. Now, if Doug Doug Papa called me up tonight and said, "Hey, I got some information for you," I'd believe him. But others, I don't. I, I, you know, I don't know. So with that, do we have Doug or do we have uh, Anthony on? All right, all right. So so coming up next because you like this no break, no network break. And I want to thank uh, Global Star Radio Network as well for uh, working with us on this. I know that Todd works like a maniac there. Uh, he's a great guy. Global Star Radio Network. Thank you so very much for all you do, and uh, we hope you had a great Thanksgiving, by the way. But. Uh, so for for going the break now we're going to bring Anthony Patch in, Anthony Patch. It's been a while. I got to yes, tell you, yes, it has, my friend. You know, good to see you and th- good to hear from you. It's good to see you. Your video is up. You look good. Um, 
Uh, you're another guy where, okay, you start talking. I'm gonna, I'll go get a cup of coffee, sit back and listen. <laughs> and I, I gotta tell you, I, I get, I got so many emails and so many comments, people saying, you know, Doug, uh, you're an idiot, basically. I'm paraphrasing. You're an idiot. Uh, meaning me. Uh, you don't even know what questions to ask. And, and they're right. I don't know what questions to ask sometimes. Your information is so detailed, so in-depth about a number of things. Um, sometimes you just have to know when to shut up and know when, you know, a man's got to know his limitations. So I defer to you, the expert, Anthony Patch. Thank you so very much for joining us. Where, where, where do we start? Sure. Where do we start? Well, I'll preface that by saying that it's an honor to be with you, and you certainly are not an idiot. Otherwise, you would not be in the position you're in. <laughs> the other is um, I like to meet the needs of the host. You, you know your audience. You know your demographics. You know your email and communications from your audience. So I always try, try to meet those needs, address those questions. So feel free to throw those out at me. I'll do the best I can to answer those questions. Um, but sure. predominantly, I'd like to cover AI and quantum computers tonight. Well, you, you know what? Let's do it. I, I don't profess to understand uh, AI. I don't profess to understand uh, some of the, in fact, the talking points given to me by John. I'm not even sure I could pronounce some of the words in there. Uh, cryptocurrencies is, is in there. CERN, of course, that you've been talking about. But you start where you want, and I will nudge you along whenever it's necessary. Just have at it. Um, let's start off with just a piece of Scripture. Um, I am a Christian. Jesus Christ is my Savior. i am you know, been a sinful individual, and I have, by the grace of God, been saved and indwelt with the Holy Spirit. So I come from that perspective. I'd like to quote John fourteen twelve. Very truly, I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the works I have been doing, and they will do even greater works than these, because I am going to the Father. Now, obviously, that's Jesus Christ. What is happening in these latter days that is related to AI and quantum computers is that technology is the tool of Satan. Technology in the sense of specifically AI and quantum computing. The reason I say that is that we are going through, by virtue of the Holy Spirit, those indwelt with the Holy Spirit, going through a process in the present moment of transformation and augmentation of our bodies and specifically of our minds. And our minds are quantum computers. I've done quite a bit of research in so far as looking at the structure of the human mind and the DNA from the particle physics perspective. And quite literally, we do operate as a quantum computer. Now, I give you that as a background because what Satan is doing is counterfeiting. He cannot create anything new. He can only counterfeit what God has created. AI and quantum computing is a counterfeit of the human mind. If you look into AI, if you look into the mechanics of quantum computers, it's quite obvious that they're studying the human mind. You've heard of the mapping of the human mind, much like the mapping of the human genome. This is all an effort to understand not only the structure and the pattern 
but to model that, to create a model of the human mind and of the human DNA, literally beginning at the quantum scale and building up, whether you're speaking of DNA or the human neurons of the brain. You will hear things in AI like recursive neural network. That is a pattern, a model model of the arrangement of neurons, not only the creation of artificial neurons, but the pattern of those and how they're connected by the dendrites in our minds. And therefore, this is a replacement. This is an attempted replacement on the part of Satan of what God created, meaning the human race. For Satan hates everything that is of God. And we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. And we are created by God, as is the entire universe. So therefore, understanding that as a basic structure for what is going on today, that there is a massive counterfeit operation underway, then we can understand better what the impact of AI and what's behind it, quantum computers, has to do with our everyday walk of life, our Specifically, you know, our daily life, our walk, whether it's with Jesus or outside of that, and this is where we're going to, and that is the battle of souls. If we are not with Jesus Christ, if we have not made that choice between the light and the dark, those that have not chosen to go with Jesus Christ are doomed. AI and the quantum computing systems that drive AI are the beast system that's spoken of in Revelation. And I'm going to give you just a couple of headlines here of my own, and that is that AI is driven not only by quantum computing systems, but it is also having its IQ raised. It is being taught by the Internet of Everything, the Internet of Things, as it's more properly known. But the advent of cryptocurrencies is the mark of the beast system. Cryptocurrencies serve, as I call it, to raise the IQ of AI. Now, there are many stratifications of AI, very basic applications of it, like you would find in your smartphone, all the way out to what I call the leading edge or the tip of the spear. That has to do with specifically quantum computers at that level. That's the level I wish to address with you tonight. And that is, this is an existential threat to the human race, according to people like Elon Musk and Dr. Stephen Hawking. So that's my foundation, and I'll be happy to take any questions. Okay. A couple of things that you said. Technology is a tool of Satan. I I believe technology can be used for good, but certainly in this case it's being used as really the architecture for the beast system, or it is the beast system and will be used as the system of the beast. I believe that. Um, the AI. One thing I don't quite understand, and let, let's let's assume that you and I are just talking, and, and you're talking to me uh, with limited knowledge. Artificial intelligence, basically, is is what. Um, how does it even operate on on on, a, on, on the internet, for example? Be, and is it is it responsible for? Um, how can I put this? When I see advertisements for example i will 
do a search. Let's say I'm looking for an office chair, as an example. I, I put in search office chair, and you know I'll get a bunch of results. But then every ad thereafter is a picture of a chair for for an office. Is that what kind of an example of artificial intelligence is, or is that just something mm-hmm. much more basic? Are we looking at something much greater and much deeper than that? That's an algorithm. That's a very basic, simple okay. mathematical instruction. Okay. And what it is doing is it is observing the behavior of humans, be it through searches, facial recognition, observing our environment in which we operate in. Op- uh, an application you may consider would be the autonomous vehicle operation in which AI learns by observing a human operating a vehicle. Um, AI is nothing more than algorithms of instructions. Now, they get very complex at the higher levels, but yes, in terms of directing ads to you, absolutely. That is a very rudimentary, what is known as a general artificial intelligence program. Okay, and that's the most basic uh, example. We have what? We have, uh, we're seeing this push of sex dolls, for example, and these animated human-like sex dolls. That's mm-hmm. the, the more sophisticated aspect of AI because they learn from, um, am I correct to say that they learn, for example, from the input that they receive from the human being? And respond to the mm-hmm. same. Is, is that not not to get graphic or gross here? But I mean that, that's the mm-hmm. that's kind of almost to me that's kind of like the top uh, level of artificial intelligence insinuation into the um, what we're seeing. I, I mean I, I don't know. Is, sure. is, is there something beyond that as well? Well, my my purpose here is not to trip you up or to confuse the audience or anything else. So. If I make corrections or additions, it isn't because I'm trying to sound like I'm a know-it-all or that I know everything. But I will tell you from my standpoint, when we look at things like Sophia, which was just granted citizenship status in Saudi Arabia, that's a robot. That's an AI robot. Sophia in Greek translates to wisdom. Even that is not the top level of AI capabilities. But it is certainly near that leading edge. So I'll take you all the way to the leading edge. The leading edge of it actually has to do with communicating with the other side. This is a communication tool that operates through dimensional information gateways. And I'll back that up later. I'm just giving you the highlights. At the leading level, AI is in direct communication with the other side, with demonic entities, with Satan himself. And that sounds preposterous, but I do the research, both ancient and modern, to back that up. This is a communication tool that live right now is receiving information, and I'll define that later, but information from the other side and is in direct control. Now, to back that up, what I will let you know is that at the highest levels of AI, when scientists and programmers, engineers, are questioned as to explaining how is the AI operating at these highest levels, not with your smartphone and not even with the Sophia robot example, but how is AI arriving at its decisions, at its answers, at its conclusions? 
and they are at a loss to explain it. And this is public information. They publicly acknowledge that they do not know how the AI internally is operating at this point. The reason for that, what has caused that, is that the AI has moved into not only recursive neural network, which means sort of a never-ending process, a closed loop of learning in which the AI is teaching itself, but it has moved into what is called deep machine learning, deep computer learning where the AI is self-correcting. It is able to take in with deep machine learning or deep neural network learning, it is taking in larger batches, as they call it, larger batches of information than was found in what was called a recursive neural network. So at the deep level, we're talking about an operating system that is operating autonomously in its gathering of information, processing, and self-learning. Autonomous from human input and control. And as I said, from any ability by humans now to discern and describe what AI is actually doing internally. So there's a nutshell. So, so, so if I'm hearing you correctly, the, mm-hmm. the create well the the people behind it, this artificial intelligence, don't even understand or claim not to understand how it works. And you're saying that there is a there is a uh, shall we say a trans uh, dimensional aspect to this? I, I guess by virtue of the fact that you're talking about this system being able to communicate with demonic uh, forces and that as crazy as that sounds I kind of mm-hmm. understand it is that what you're saying it is absolutely what I'm saying and again there's an awful lot of detail behind these statements but I will say this the origins of computing binary computing zeros and ones and its growth all the way to the present time in AI the roots of AI if you will and all of computing comes from Geomancy. Geomancy and necromancy. Necromancy is communicating with the dead. Geomancy is doing the same thing through a process of divination, divining the meaning of random marks in the soil. A person providing imprints in the soil on a random basis or the casting of stones and sticks on the ground, hence geomancy. And then one who is practiced and trained in the arts of divining or interpreting these seemingly random associations of marks in the soil or sticks that are used or stones that are used, that divination process is a process of communicating with the spirits. If you look at the written record of geomancy within the Bible and also within the secret organizations, the secret societies, we can cite a often cited example, which is the Freemasons. The Masons practice geomancy. So if we are looking at the basis for binary communication, binary computing, as being derived from geomancy, communicating with the other side, 
then we understand that with the more sophisticated application of quantum computers, which by the statement of one of the co-founders of D-Wave, Gordy Rose, publicly stated in 2013, the video's out there, it's in my Entangled magazine, the transcript, he said that they are accessing 2 to the 500th power of parallel dimensions and that they are extracting, as he calls it, resources from the other side. That's information. Now, that was with the 512 model, had 512 qubits. This year, they sold a 2,000-qubit model, the 2,000Q. They're now communicating with 2 to the 2,000th power of parallel dimensions, according to... So, you see the connection between the ancient practice, even shown in the Bible of geomancy, which relates to Daniel, all the way to the present time in which the same system of binary, geomantic-derived mathematical processing, which results in algorithms, and the algorithms drive not only D-Wave as the processing system, as the mechanics, the nuts and bolts of it, but the AI programming of those algorithms in the process of teaching itself. Now, I take it a step further and go beyond just calling it teaching itself to say it is connected through these 2 to the 2,000th power of parallel dimensions to the other side and therefore in real time is receiving instructions and information on what it is to do in our reality. And I'll stop there. You would stop there, right? Okay. I'm still struggling over the term geomancy. And when you, when, and I, I apologize for going backwards, but when I, when, when you look no. up the, the, the term geomancy, um, I, I'm just surprised by the, I've never heard that term before. I've heard ne- necromancy, of course, but geomancy, hey, Color me uh, ignorant on this topic. I, I've never heard of that, that topic before, or that that word before. But when you go back and you look at the uh, the origins of this word, uh, the science of the sand, for example, the Arabic term, uh, and yep. the, the exactly the, okay, okay. So now, um, when you bring it forward to today, yeah, there's a lot to talk about in there. There's a lot of connections. What we're seeing today. With respect to the, 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 and again, pardon me for even sounding um, uh, as academic uh, or as simple as, as I am, but when you start connecting the dots here, we're looking at an ancient system that is being what implemented through computers. Uh, Absolutely. Okay. All right. When we look at the mathematics involved, there's a um, a little more advanced form of binary zeros and ones that we need to take into account. Um, there's another form of mathematics beyond zero and one, which is called balanced ternary, and that's three numbers. That is negative one, zero, and positive one. This is what AI is using. They are struggling in AI to move to the quaternary level, which is utilizing four numbers. The point here is that it is more than just binary. 
And the complexity can be best conceptualized, if you will, in a geometric way. So let me give you a little bit of history. Back in the 1590s, in Europe, we had Dee and Kelly. We had Edward Kelly and John Dee, who were practitioners of geomancy and necromancy. They were alchemists. They communicated with the fallen angels. They received both an alphabet and the numerical representations, let's call them algorithms in our vernacular, numbers that prescribed geometric shapes. Those shapes were intended for the use of arranging the elements, the base elements, such that you could, in the parlance of alchemy, you could change lead into gold, this alchemic process. It's much more involved, but I'm just trying to keep it to things that people are familiar with. What you're talking about here is the ability to communicate using both a written language, an alphabet, as well as a communication language. This is something that Aleister Crowley also took on. Now, I'll give you a touch point because many people are familiar with Crowley and his work. He has a square, a square tablet, if you will, that is divided by a cross in the center into four quadrants. Within that four-quadrant arrangement in a square can be the alphabet or the numbers that he has received. He received, much like Dee and Kelly did, from this mystical practice, this dark art of geomancy, as well as necromancy. There are actually about seven different forms of, quote, mancy. There's aquamancy, aromancy, spatulomancy. So using these systems and these tools of communication with what we would consider to be parallel dimensions, they were able to manipulate the elements. And that's what this whole thing is about. It is about creating a new reality, if you want to call it terraforming the planet. It's changing the actual physical structure of our reality, while at the same time trying to create a new human 2.0, a new race of beings. Now, it sounds, again, preposterous, but when you look at what their agenda is, when you look at the historical record, you look at biblical scripture, you look at the technology today in which they are literally, for example, with DNA, able to create a biological life form in the computer, what I call in silico DNA, model it in the computer, and then output it into a biological printer, a bioprinter, using the amino acids, and create a life form, not creating life, but creating a life form from an existing life form, a modification. Now, this is all in the literature. It's all in the peer-reviewed papers. It's all in the journals. None of what I'm stating is science fiction. When you look at their agenda in DNA and you look at the agenda in quantum computing, which has its roots not only in geomancy but in particle physics and quantum mechanics, then you see that they have in place today the tools to accomplish what they've set out to do for hundreds of years. 
And essentially, that is, as I said in the opening statement, it is to destroy what God has created, be it the earth, our environment, and the human race. Now, this is not fear-mongering. This is not to scare people. I'm saying this is what Satan is pushing for. But God is going, he has a line already predefined in the sand. But he's drawn a line in the sand. And he is not going to allow Satan to achieve these goals of completely changing the earth and completely doing away with his creation and going to human 2.0. And this is why we move into the book of Revelation and we see what unfolds in terms of judgment. Now, that first judgment was by water with the flood. This time, as we know, it's the burning of the elements. The reason it's the burning of the elements is because literally at the quantum scale, the elements through the alchemic processes of today are being manipulated and are being changed. And this is going to be a clean slate approach. The good news for those that are indwelt with the Holy Spirit is what I quoted from Jesus himself in John 14:12 that we will do greater works than even Jesus Christ. We will be transformed, and it's happening now, and augmented in our minds to stay ahead of, not abreast, not equal to, but several steps ahead of Satan's agenda. If we speak about DNA, the Holy Spirit, the full armor of God, protects our DNA from these changes. If we're talking about our minds, our quantum computers, they also are protected from these changes that Satan is trying to push on us. So, what does this translate to? What does this mean for us that have the Holy Spirit? It means that we can expect to see significant enhancements in our mental and physical capabilities. I'm not talking about Superman. I'm just saying as the pushing of the envelope in DNA research and in quantum computing and AI advances, realize that God is already well ahead of what they are saying are marvelous wonders and works in their scientific advancements with DNA and AI. Don't be afraid of AI because it will never even equal the human mind. I'm not talking about computational abilities where you're talking about running mathematical formulae. I'm talking about our consciousness and our soul. It will never achieve consciousness at the level of a human, and it certainly will never have a soul of its own. And I'll stop there. Okay. And I think people can understand this. I can understand this, I believe, at this point, because... I mean, okay. If if we look back over over history and look at the technological advancements that that have that we've seen, um, right up through 1900, the year 1900, and then we'll use that as a cutoff point. And then going from 1900 forward to today, I mean, it's mm-hmm. possible for someone alive today to, to to have seen this this major transformation in their lives uh, of uh, riding on a horseback and taking uh, days to get you know from uh, Cleveland to Akron Ohio whereas now it, it's it's much different the reason i bring this such basic information up is mm-hmm. you've laid a lot of heavy information on on us here 
the the other part of this as well. Um, that's kind of um, well, it's it's I think what we're seeing is a microcosm too of what you're talking about. For example, you know, remember the old DOS systems on our computers, and, and I apologize for taking up your time and, and for but no, I'm j- no. just really have to process this in my mind. Well, you're speaking for the audience. You're, you're bringing to me the audience's perspective well, on this. So and, I appreciate what you're saying. Yeah, and believe me, the emails I get after you, after your appearance, is like you should have asked them this, and, and it, it ranges from the most basic to the to the most the, to you know I, I can only understand like you know, three or four words of an email because they're using uh, you know the, the language. So, uh, but I'm trying to appeal to the the broadest base here, and, and even mm-hmm. myself in understanding this. Um, everything that we're seeing, kind of in a larger sense, everything that we're seeing take place today. Uh, is a result, in, or how we got to this point today is, if I'm if I'm hearing everything you're saying correctly, is is um, is has been for has been foreshadowed and prophesized. So we are living in a time right now where, um, I mean, just to get to the the bottom line here, the bottom line is, you've got people or you've got satanic forces who want to corrupt the human DNA, and capture the souls through the corruption of human DNA. Is, is that right? Uh, um, and the only, our only defense, our, our sole defense is, of course, the blood of the Lamb or our belief in Jesus Christ. And, of course, that protects our DNA from the changes from the forces, the satanic forces. And I know I just jumped around there a little bit, but Again, I'm going from the okay. basic understanding, um, seeing all these changes happen in such a short short period of time. You know, we, we there was four thousand years of history, and all of a sudden now, in a hundred years, we've gone from horseback to, you know, to uh, to where we're at today, in a very short period of time. Yeah. You know, so so that's one thing, and the other thing is, of course, the uh, the ultimate prize, of course, is our human souls on behalf of the devil. That's what the the you know the satanic forces want. Again, I'm just trying to, to to set the basis here for a vast and differing uh, level of, of audience uh, knowledge and understanding, as well as my own. So, sure. you know, okay, so, so this is for all the marbles today, right? It is. And it's real time. It's happening right now. Okay. Now, if I can ask just a very simple question, who's behind this? Obviously, secret societies you've mentioned, but but are there any identifiable people where we could say that man right there is behind instituting this or that group? Or is it as simple as that, or is it something more complex than that? I don't think it's really um, possible from my standpoint, because what I do is I research the technology. Okay. I don't really go into the secret societies, and I'll answer that by making a plug. Um, I have scheduled on December 9th an interview, a webinar with Gary Wayne, and you know Gary Wayne from his Genesis 6 conspiracy right. book and tremendous 800-page work of research. And we are going to be talking more specifically about the question you just posed about who's behind this, because Gary, much more knowledgeable in this area than I am. It is, you know, his bailiwick, so to speak. So I'm going to beg off and I'm going to say that I can name industry leaders. 
AI. But they're not the ones that are creating the agenda and then pushing the agenda from behind. Okay. I'm going to let Gary explain that on December 9th in our webinar. Okay, and can people tune into that via your website, anthonypatch.com? Or how do we... Yes, if they... Okay. If they go to anthonypatch.com right now, there is a tab for that, and they can go ahead and um, purchase their ticket through my website. And the reason that we're even charging $10 is just to cover the technology cost, and um, so we appreciate that. Okay. You know, we try to make it as affordable and accessible as we possibly can. And then we have another webinar, as you're showing on the screen here, December 16th, I'll be joined by author Kathleen Urquhart, who happens to be my fiance, by the way, so full disclosure. Oh, congratulations. Um, thank you, sir. And uh, we will be presenting the fullness of the Gentiles, divergence, the fullness of the Gentiles. Gary is nice enough to build the foundation for this, and then we are going to bring on what is the state of the Gentiles. The fullness of the Gentiles has often been looked upon as the number, the quantity of Gentiles saved, and then the advent of the rapture, the returning of Jesus. We have determined that this is more a state of the human race, more a state of the transformation and augmentation that I mentioned. This isn't because Kathleen and myself are anything special. We're just, you know, witnesses, just simple, basic witnesses. What we have been fervently praying for and graciously been given is information that explains what the fullness of the Gentiles really is. And this relates back to Daniel and his application of geomancy, approved in the, at the time by God himself to employ geomancy to identify the dream of Nebuchadnezzar, which he had no foreknowledge to, and then to interpret the dream correctly. And at that moment, then God commanded Daniel to seal up the book, and we're going to show that this is not actually a book, but to cease the practice of geomancy, the dark arts, mm. because in the latter days, that information would be released, and what we're presenting to you is that the book of Daniel is open, the information's being released, and it is being given to those that are seeking God's face and God's Explanation, if you want to call it a downloading of information. But this is literally what is happening in this transformation. We're being augmented by this information that was not only in the book of Daniel, but designed for this time that through the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit would actually show people how to engage in this spiritual warfare. And that's what we are involved in now. We set the stage on December 16th and, or September 16th and 17th on the two day webinar. Specifically on the 17th, Kathleen and I talked about not only the geomancy, but using the art of war by Sun Tzu as a backdrop. We outlined how we are now engaged in spiritual warfare because we know that we are not fighting against flesh and blood. We are dealing with principalities. And in all seriousness, this is a spiritual battle because we now see the technology in communication with spirits 
that is directly impacting our everyday life through the format of AI. Wow. That that certainly summarizes or succinctly uh, explains the AI process and, and the purpose, I suppose. Uh, would you say that the purpose, then, of artificial intelligence is to... Um, is to replace yeah. the human race. Okay. All right. Wow. Now, I, I would be remiss not to mention your magazine, Entangled Magazine. How do people get that? Talk to us about that, because I, because I, I think this is a fabulous sure. idea. Well, the, the basis for Entangled Magazine that's available through anthonypatch.com is to provide the more in-depth explanations of the topics that I'm presenting here tonight, as well as on my radio program on Truth Frequency Radio. Three days a week, I spend two hours a day talking about high-tech. And even that does not provide the opportunity to get into the finer details that might otherwise lose the audience. So putting it in writing gives us that opportunity to be more in-depth and to cite the actual facts and sources. And it also is a platform for other researchers, not necessarily in high tech, but those that are doing spiritual research and scriptural research, for them to have a platform where maybe they may not have that opportunity to get their information out to the world. And that's really what we're doing. It's just providing multiple forms of communication tools, be it the magazine, the website, radio, my opportunity to speak with you tonight, and to conduct our webinar. So we try to hit people on a lot of different levels because everybody learns differently, and we're trying to address that. And I think, it's, uh, folks, it's uh, at any cost, it is a, a great investment of time. Uh, for Entangled Magazine, the of course, the um, the radio shows that Anthony Patch does. This is incredible. You're not going to learn this in one hour, two hours, or a day. It's gonna. It's a process. It's a learning process, and I think that um, it's important for people to to really understand because I, you know, I, look, I got to tell you, Anthony, um, you're you're far far ahead of me. I mean, I in in terms of really the basic understanding of what's taking place, but you make it. One thing, one thing I'll say about the magazine, as well as your radio broadcast, you make it simple for people like me. So I'm glad you do that. Um, we've got about uh, seven, about seven minutes before the top of the hour, when we do have to take okay. a break. So, so Anthony, what? Um, again, you said a lot here in, the, in this segment. What? Uh, what can we cover in the next several minutes? That would be that we could segue into the, the, the next hour here. Sure. Well, let's take a, a, a stab at an actual application, and I'll, I'll set it up this way. I said it was an existential threat to us as the human race, and again, that comes from people like Elon Musk and Dr. Stephen Hawking, and there are others that have raised the alarm. And they are very concerned about, you know, our our ability to exist as a human race. From an engineering perspective, they're very concerned about it. So the tangible example would be this very recent explosion by design of cryptocurrencies. Just last week, 
there was an agreement and put in place a software program from SingularityNet.io as what I call the clearinghouse for cryptocurrencies. Anybody that understands currency exchanges and uh, currency trading knows that you go through a clearinghouse process. So in the world of cryptocurrency, they had last week agreed to what they call the singularity. That doesn't have to do with uploading us into a computer such as Ray Kurzweil from Google is promoting the singularity in that respect. But it is a singularity in terms of a single coordinating program for cryptocurrencies, Bitcoin, for example. What we have seen since last week is an absolute explosion of new forms of cryptocurrencies, new coins, new cash, and new gold equivalents within cryptocurrency. So that's just kind of the news break, but I want to give you the background and the relevancy of cryptocurrency, what is known as blockchain. That's the structure. You have a if chain I, of tra- yeah. If I can just interject something here, now you're talking sure. my language because I, I've heard people report on this explosion of, of cryptocurrency, and and I think most people can understand that concept, and this is good because the, the, the would you say that cryptocurrency is the currency of um the, yes yeah thank you I you know what I was going to say. <laughs> I love it. This is the mark of the beast system. That's right. Okay. All right. Absolutely I, it is. I, I didn't mean to take you off your stride. we got about uh, four minutes before we have to break. Go ahead. No. So just the foundation, and we'll go into it a little bit further, but it is a blockchain of transactions, and every transaction is recorded in an open ledger system. The blockchain process is the same process by which AI learns. It learns by stringing together solutions, transactions. Every solution adds to the IQ, not just the depth of knowledge, not just the database, but it adds to the IQ, and I'll explain that after the break, what I mean by adding to the IQ. But the purpose of blockchain commerce is not for commerce. It is for teaching the AI system that is in control of it so that it becomes a more sophisticated brain, if you will. Because the same process that you see of blockchains is the same way that our quantum computer brains learn and process information and retain information. So when you look at blockchain as a schematic diagram, if you will, it is branching, what they call forking. The branching of the cryptocurrency blockchains is identical to the process in which the connecting fibers between neurons in our human brain, which are known as dendrites, the proliferation, the branching, the forking of dendrites within our brain to interconnect neurons serves to raise our IQ, our ability to process information rapidly. That is exactly what is happening in blockchain with cryptocurrencies. It is creating more dendrites, more connections, enhancing the IQ. I said I would say it after the break, but I kind of gave it away there. So go ahead if you had a question. Well, 
uh, the only question I, I would have is how is that even possible? But I think you you address that and explain that pretty well. Um, and, and just so people understand, when you talk cryptocurrencies, you're talking about the currencies uh, on the on the digital currencies, and of course that's the currency of the dark web uh, to, that people use um, in its most basic form. I should say you're talking about like cryptocurrencies mm-hmm. such as Bitcoin and there are other right. cryptocurrencies out there and it's it's interesting to me last week that we saw this this as you put this explosion but it's um what 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 I saw on Bitcoin the the value um and again this is something I understand okay the value of Bitcoin or, or correct me if if that's is, is mm-hmm. it, it it went it, yep. it went up extremely you know rapidly high and rapid and high and there's a there's a reason for that is what you're saying. Yes. Okay. All right. Now with that, our guest is Anthony Patch. We're going to be we're up against the top of the hour network break. His Twitter is Anthony Patch three. Anthony Patch on the number three. AnthonyPatch.com is his website. Don't forget to sign up, register for his webinar on December ninth. Uh, I'll tell you something. Um, this is an area for me personally that I want to get deeper. A, a much deeper understanding, and if I could, uh, you know, if, if I could just uh, knowledge could rub off, I'd be, I'd be rubbing shoulders with Mister Patch, like you know, twenty four seven, because uh, his understanding of what's taking place is a lot deeper than than mine at this point. AnthonyPatch.com, Entangled Magazine, as well, which provides an evolving explanation of what we're talking about right here. You're listening to the Hagman Report. Ho. Oh. My goodness, we're going to be right back. Stay right where you're at. Solo Joe's out sick today. I uh, just want to thank everyone for joining us. Thank you so much for your belief and your trust in us as we walk through this uh, uh, really a, an intense topic. And we are so uh, grateful to have with us Anthony Patch. AnthonyPatch.com, that's his website. Follow him on Twitter at Anthony Patch and the number three. Anthony Patch three. That's Anthony Patch number three on Twitter. And of course, Hey, be part of Entangled Magazine. Change the future. You can do it. Increase your understanding of the topics that Anthony Patch is talking about through Entangled Magazine. And of course, the uh, I mentioned this, but I, want, I should say it again: the the webinar that's coming up on December ninth, very important as well as well as the subsequent webinars. It, it's it's you can't. There's no such thing as not uh, errors getting too much of this information. Before we get back to Mr. Patch, I want to just thank all of our sponsors. Green Innovative. You know, folks, look, uh, if you exchange gifts during the holiday season or birthdays or whatever it might be, greenovative.com, incredible sales there. 
Okay, other all of our other sources. How about the book series by T.C. Joseph, this generation series? T.C. Joseph. These are these are sponsors who have stood by us privately, partnered up with us, and have stood by us and have not acquiesced to the uh, to, to the onslaught of people attempting to to take us off the air. I want to thank you for doing that. I want to thank Green Innovative. I want to thank Ready Made Resources, Bob Griswold. I want to thank um, T.C. Joseph. These are the people that we need to support as well. And all speaking of support, again, support uh, Anthony Patch through Entangled Magazine, of course, anthonypatch.com. And so proud to have him with us tonight talking about a very complex, in my mind, a complex subject. Perhaps, perhaps there are some people out there that understand this. i got to tell you, it's difficult for me. To, to really comprehend. Before the break, we were talking about cryptocurrencies and uh, Bitcoin, for example, as one of the cryptocurrencies. And one thing I do understand is is the reports. People are talking about, oh, my goodness, the, they're gaining in value. And I understand that they're the currencies, digital currencies, especially used on the dark web. But people, while people will report on the explosion of cryptocurrencies, is there is there a working understanding as to why? And perhaps Mr. Patchwell can explain. Uh, Anthony, th- thanks so much for for holding over and for uh, continuing on this this hour. Let's get into the explosion of cryptocurrencies, Bitcoin, for example, and why not just not not just that the fact that they're they're exploding in terms of use as mm-hmm. well as equity, but what's behind that? Well. As I often relate in many of my explanations, many of what are the operations that we see are psychological operations. There's a psychological manipulation of people that is underway. And that's probably the most effective tool in the arsenal in this spiritual battle is to affect people's minds psychologically. So what I'm saying here in relation to Bitcoin is they are running basically a Ponzi scheme, a pyramid scheme, in which they are making it look so attractive that you can make vast amounts of money in Bitcoin and the other cryptocurrencies if you get on board now. Now, you know, the train sort of left the station already in terms of getting in at the ground floor. And there are people that have made millions of dollars off of cryptocurrencies. And that feeds this psychological fervor of greed, one of our base driving forces in our psychological makeup is greed, unfortunately. And so this is feeding that greed by saying, here are new forms of cryptocurrencies that you can get in on the ground floor of, and then ride this pyramid up in this rapidly advancing valuation of currency that lives literally in a computer, in silico, in silicon, in transistor, but in this case we're moving into a discussion of quantum bits, qubits. But this idea that within a computer you have zeros and ones, and they're not backed by the United States government or any other government. Okay? So it is a system of greed that feeds on itself and drives the valuation up. 
And so where we get this branching that I talked about in which the blockchain splits off into things like BitCash and BitGold and other named, other labeled forms of cryptocurrencies, and we're going to expand on that point in just a moment, but people see an opportunity to get in on the ground floor. The unfortunate thing is, is that it is all smoke and mirrors. But psychologically, what it is doing is getting people to want to have a B system to participate in. If you tried to force this on people, their natural instinct inclination would be to resist it because people don't like to be told what to do. So you go 180 degrees the other direction with it, and you make it attractive so that they want to, they beg, they're beating down the doors to participate in the beast system. That's the insidious psychological aspect to this. Now, the forms of Bitcoin, I use that as just sort of an overview. It's a very common term of cryptocurrency. But what we have since last week with the singularity the clearinghouse, if you will, of software to coordinate all of this and to establish valuations. You have corporations now that realize, and they did a long time ago, but now that it's, quote, official with the clearinghouse of last week through the singularity net.iq or IO, you have corporations like Amazon, Walmart, and any other business that wants to survive today and tomorrow, they have to jump on the bandwagon of cryptocurrency because the valuation process, the earnings that they can realize, they have greed as well. People are running corporations. Corporations are not some strange entity that operates outside of human control. But those that are running these businesses are driven by greed as well, like we all are. But, uh, if, so, I can, if I can yeah. inter interject one thing here, because sure. one of the things that uh, it was my understanding that drew people into cryptocurrencies, yes, greed indeed, hey, I rhymed, um, but also the level of anonymity that cryptocurrencies provide, which mm. I didn't quite understand that. I, and I still don't understand that because I don't see that. Although, again, the cryptocurrencies being used, for example, Bitcoin being used for uh, illegal transactions on the on the dark web. And, and so, I get your greed aspect, but the anonymity—that's not really true, is it? Um, no. Okay. There is. There is no privacy in the world. We know that. Right. That's gone by the wayside, and the. One of the advantages, one of the attractive features in a blockchain process, and blockchain applies not just to cryptocurrency, but it applies to many areas of our conducting of business and our life. For example, the legal system. There is a blockchain process for the legal system, for legal advice and for filing of lawsuits, etc. And certainly for contracts and contract drawing, contract negotiations all function in a blockchain fashion already. So what we're looking at here is the 
ledger, the open ledger system was a very, very attractive aspect to cryptocurrencies, that every transaction was available in a transparent fashion. Every ledger, every record of every transaction was open for public scrutiny. Now, that was the way it was presented. This is not exactly true. Not all those ledgers are open to scrutiny because of who controls these different currencies. And I'm going to give you an example. Last week, the U.S. Federal Reserve announced that they would be issuing a Fed coin. Therefore, what we're seeing now is that if you issue the coin, are you truly going to be transparent with your ledgers that record those transactions? And I would say that, no, they are not all going to be transparent. What could possibly they go are. wrong? By the way, you know, uh, uh, yeah, okay. Now I'm, I'm now I'm understanding this a little bit more. Go ahead. Yeah, and so the the advantage, the attractiveness of supposedly an open register system, open transaction system, was supposed to level the playing field that everybody that got involved would be able to see um, who was buying and selling and how the increase in value was was happening. And the governments that wanted to have some oversight of these transactions beyond just the black, you know, the dark web, the black transactions, but out into the open, into, as I say, the Walmarts and the Amazons, et cetera, operating with cryptocurrency, that certainly is in the open marketplace. So governments being able to observe these transactions in these ledgers can begin to tax them. So it's not necessarily a tax haven as early on people thought, oh, well, we'll get into the cryptocurrencies and we can avoid taxes because this will be a worldwide system. It's more than just offshoring your account to the Bahamas or the Cayman Islands. The other issue with, and you touched on this with governments, is they want to be able to discover not only the transactions in the dark web, but one of the reasons in the announcement from the Federal Reserve for issuing the Fed currency, the Fed coin, was to be able to begin to eliminate money laundering activities and drug transactions involving cash. And therefore, we very rapidly, and you see where I'm going, very rapidly instituting a cryptocurrency to then swap out and put into place a cashless society, hence the B system. Long pause there. Oh, I'm sorry. No, I should deliberate. I should tell you when I no, say no. I'm done. That that's deliberate on my end because let that sink in, people. Seriously, we've got a swapping out of cash. So I'll give you a touch point, as I often say. If we see corporations rapidly moving to cryptocurrency, I would say it's not too far down the road before we see announcements from people like Walmart and Amazon and other large players announcing their crypto coins. And then eventually, and I don't think it, that's too far down the road, where they are going to say, we will no longer process cash. And they'll say, well, this is a Federal Reserve mandate. Federal Reserve is issuing Fed coin. They want us to move away from cash. 
So we are going to adhere with that. We're going to promote this. And they'll put it out as sort of this peace and safety dialogue that you see on, our, on other agendas of the world, peace and safety. It's always this. It's for your, your safety, your security that we're going to do away with cash. It's for your good, for your protection. So it's and, here, folks. And when you look back, at least when I look back, for example, the cover of The Economist back way back when, um, in the 80s, I think it was, uh, the and as we move toward today, the the present day, the killing of the U.S. dollar, all of this, um, it, it's paving the way, or has paved the way, perhaps, to the very system that, that you're talking about, and, and all of this is for a one-world currency, for complete control. The they know exactly. Um, how much money you have, where it goes, what you spend it on. They could tax it, but most importantly, they could take it away from you if you don't participate in or accept the mark of the beast. This right. is the control. This is the controlling mechanism. And again, this is, I can understand this. This would be the controlling mechanism for the population. Get on board or we're going to just cut you out and you're going to be a non-citizen, a non-entity, non-human, non, not welcome. That is correct. And that, if you look at it and stand back and be objective and ask, is this a benevolent process or is this a nefarious, malevolent process? I don't see anything benevolent about this system. Nor do I. As you just said. Yeah. And, so, yeah, the ultimate, yeah. the, the and, and, you know, you mentioned greed earlier. I just have to revisit that term. The greed factor. We see so many people get tangled up in that. And of course, uh, that is where a lot of people fail, you know, but, but, but even aside from that, it, it just the, the mere acceptance too, and, and just back up a little bit, the mere acceptance by this generation. Uh, how many people today, and, and I'm just going to, this is an open question to those listening to this program. How many people today actually used paper money for their transactions? Whether it was at Walmart or the corner store, did you use paper money or, or did you give them a card? And, uh, even most at the most of the time, I'm using a card. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And so, so the, the transition into the, um, cryptocurrencies, into this, this one world currency, this digital currency where everything is manipulated and such. Again, I go back to my level of understanding where I'm at and it's easy for me to understand how this could all take place and it wouldn't take very long. It's uh, to me, Anthony, how, I mean, we're there today. The infrastructure is in place. It just needs some refinements, I think. Is that is that pretty accurate? Well, it, it needs to add to its IQ, as I like to say. Right. It, it needs to raise its IQ. And let me explain how that happens a little more. Every time there is a transaction, it not only records the transaction, but it also records, as you very prescient, presciently stated, it's paying attention to our buying habits. AI was built on observing human behavior. 
it built algorithms that mimicked human behavior. And it did this through facial recognition, pattern recognition, behavioral pattern recognition, stepping up in sophistication until it had enough data to where it could predict human behavior. What is happening with the transactions is adding to the density of that data, what they, what they call in computing, the granularity of data. As you increase the granularity, the density of the data, the amount of data that is in the big data system, then you have the ability to predict behavior. If you can predict behavior of humans because you're looking at the pattern of behavior that then dictates the prediction, then you have the ability to better, as you stated, again, very astutely, they have the ability to control you. So it's not just reactionary nor real-time control, but it is a future control in which it is anticipating what humans will do. And not just in commerce, in all aspects of our life. So this spreads out, as I said, just like increasing the IQ of the human is related to the propagation, the growth of the dendrites that connect neurons. This is the same growth of dendrites within the AI system that enables it to have this ability to predict, to anticipate, and then to better control humans. And humans being rendered, as Elon Musk warned about two years ago about AI, he said that AI would render humans to the level of a house pet, of a house cat, if we did not get it under control, if we did not put into place mechanisms of control of AI. That was two years ago. He's pushing for something that he's he's manufacturing, which he calls the neural lace, which is a substance that's injected into an artery and travels to the human brain, attaches to the synapses and neurons of the human brain, and provides a interface between the human brain and a quantum, a, I shouldn't say quantum specifically, but a computer system. That's his solution. Now, I don't agree with that. I don't think that's the proper route to go because obviously then you are, um, you know, you're someone's mind physically and, uh, you know, it's not a solution. The solution is the, is, as I said earlier, the full armor of God, the Holy Spirit that protects you from these manipulations by AI. And the cryptocurrency, as I say, is not just for commerce, but it is for the raising of the IQ. So if we have an advancing AI system that requires protection in the form of a neural lace I say we need the protection of the full armor of God through the Holy Spirit and not the neural lace. So we can go off onto some other tangents here, but I just wanted to kind this of wrap good. that up. No, and, and, and again, thank you for bringing that uh, uh, that level of understanding to me, because again, I, I, I feel the the emails from our listeners, and I think you've done a tremendously great job in really laying that foundation out, that explanation out. And 
we talk, uh, for example, and we could segue into this. Um, uh, we have people come on the show and talk about the 5G network, the technology. That's merely mm-hmm. the infrastructure under which this would operate, correct? Absolutely. And as I've addressed it, and in one aspect of the 5G, it is the system by which you can, through millimeter wave transmissions, connect to the brain electromagnetically through the electromagnetic spectrum of 5G. And this is the Internet of everything, the Internet of things, as it's called, but the Internet of all things, more correctly, in which there is a system of sensors that is gathering data and being transmitted through the 5G system back into the AI system. And I'm being very simplistic here, but I'll give you an, another touch point. The removal, the, un, the outline of incandescent light bulbs and the literal forcing of LEDs into the homes and businesses. LED light bulbs, and you can see this in the hardware stores, it says it right on the packaging, is a Wi-Fi device. It is for the purpose of receiving and transmitting. It is a relay point for 5G, and I'll stop there. Exactly, and I I had wondered about that. I had wondered why the the big push toward LED uh, lighting, although I, I know that's not the the thrust of this subject, but it's it's kind of a anecdotal to what we're talking about here. And I see this taking place. And then, of course, you read in the packaging, right, it's it's a conveyance, um, if that's a proper term, a conveyance. Mm-hmm. Um, so everything that we, that we see taking place today is moving us gradually and, and incrementally and without even our understanding of where it is headed. But it, what you're explaining, this is all part of the process under which we are being captured, I suppose, or mm-hmm. the intent is for us, the human race, to be captured under this system. And you had mentioned artificial intelligence coming in and artificial intelligence being woven through the topics here. The um, A big part of this. Uh, wow, okay. This Absolutely. is incredible. So, overall, picture a system of gathering information that is gathered into a quantum computing driven AI system. There's something that is called a sentient world simulation, SWS. This was um, essentially dreamed up, published, peer-reviewed in 2006 out of Purdue University. It was implemented in 2007. One of the aspects that you may be familiar with, Doug, is the Palantir Corporation software system installed in Saudi Arabia. Yep. So Palantir is a multidisciplinary data gathering system and sorting system and and, um, categorizing system of data. What we're talking about overall, without getting into the weeds too far, picture the Internet of all things being a system of sensors that are registering when we awake, when we go to sleep, when we walk around in our home, our apartments, what we buy and sell, who we talk to, what we say, all of the things that are going on with humans but also in the environment is all a source of data that is picked up by a variety of sensors. 
and those sensors are feeding the data in. The more data that comes in, it's like feeding the beast. The more you feed the beast, the more you increase what people have heard about as big data. Data is the food of the AI system. And the more that it is fed, the more that it will grow. The density, the granularity of the data becomes so dense that the system has absolute control over the entire environment and those that are inhabiting it. And this is not a system in which it operates in communication with humans. About two months ago, I presented that AI had developed its own language. And it is a language between, in many of the examples, between robots, AI-equipped robots, talking to each other, communicating. Anthony, hold, hold, that, hold, that, hold that thought. We, we do have to take the bottom mm-hmm. of the hour break this hour. This is phenomenal, and we're going to pick up exactly right here where we left off with Anthony Patch, anthonypatch.com. I want to draw your attention to his magazine, Tangle Magazine. Go to anthonypatch.com for information on that, his webinar. Also follow him on Twitter. This is fascinating stuff. We're going to be right back. Network break. Stay right where we're at. You're listening to the Hagman Report on Global Star Radio Network. That's Global Star Radio Network. Thank you, Global Star. Also, Blog Talk Radio, that's BTR. There you can get the archives as well, as well as on, on Global Star Radio Network and also YouTube Live. Thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for your belief and trust in us. I do have to mention, of course, that uh, the patron uh, Patreon account uh, that we have set up. Thank you so much for everyone who, who has helped building this operation. We want to let you know that the $25 reward private live stream will take place this Sunday, December 3rd at 7 o'clock p.m. Eastern Time. Sign up for that if you haven't done so already. And if you have done so, you'll you'll get an email probably on Sunday, that'll uh, Sunday afternoon, that'll walk you through the process, how to connect with the interview live stream. And... Um, and again, if you haven't, uh, if you, if you want to join that, uh, the, the reward level there, it's my understanding on Patreon is $25. And what you can expect is interactive face-to-face group video conference. Joe and I discuss, uh, group discussion on news and current events. And, uh, you can ask us just about anything, really. And there's a good chance that the live stream is going to go longer than an hour. We've got, but, but, but hey, sign up, come on board. And also the forum for our Patreon members will be up and running toward the end of this week. That's kind of a soft launch date. We're not, not exactly 100% sure, but um, that's what that's what we're shooting for. There's a lot of people working behind the scenes. Eric, the tech, is just, just really working behind the scenes. So we want to thank you for that. Thank you for your support in our operation. Also, December 9th, is the webinar for Anthony Patch. Go to anthonypatch.com. Get the details there, as well as Entangled Magazine. You know, Anthony Patch is a, a very knowledgeable man, and uh, he, his writing is, is incredible. His, he's a sought-after speaker, and we're very fortunate to have him. Um, his time is extremely valuable, and again, I want to extend my thanks to Anthony Patch because this gift of time and I want to thank him as well for agreeing to dumb it down to talk to me 
at my level so I can understand the ramifications of, of the topic. So having said that, Anthony Patch, thank you so much for holding over. In our final segment here, we've got... Uh, We've got full, uh, full, complete control through the end of the, the show. Uh, we are talking about the about AI right where you left off. If you want to pick that up, go right ahead, sir. Well, I, we were talking about the advent of a unique language within the realm of the higher levels of, a, of AI itself, and you know they often show the. Um, conversation taking place between two robots. That's just to make it something that's a little more anthropomorphic. The real communication occurs devoid of any sort of a robotic structure. It happens real-time within the computing system. And to take this back to the beginning of the show, AI is communicating in its own language with the other side, so to speak, more specifically with demonic entities that are communicating in this specific language that it was given. Again, historical touch point. We go back to the discussion of Dean Kelly in the 15, late 1500s in which they were given an alphabet, an actual language of the angels, the fallen angels. And this is all recorded in the documents, and anybody can research this. And, and therefore, the same language is given to AI. And this is where the engineers, the specialists, say, we don't understand what AI is doing. Again, at the leading edge, the tip of the spear, as I call it, of the AI, this is not in your phone. I'm talking about where it has advanced on its own through its own learning process, its own deep neural network, deep machine learning process in which it has developed its own language to communicate with the other side. It's not necessarily other AIs around the world that it's communicating with exclusively. It is communicating around the world with other AI systems, but to the other side as well, because that language is the language of the fallen angels. So again, this is not anthropomorphic. You know, they want to put the robots together like Sophia. As I said, the name in, in Greek means wisdom. Give it citizenship status and make it seem warm and fuzzy. And this goes back to my saying that this is a psychological process in which they try to make AI and cryptocurrency systems something that is benevolent, when in fact it is quite the opposite of that. This is where people are being fooled into believing that this is all well and good where science is taking us and that the grand priesthood of science, the leaders in the scientific community and those that are funding the scientific community, you asked about who's behind this. One of the intermediate points to that question and therefore an answer is the grant system. They follow the money trail that we always talk about. It's not just the governments and it's not just the bankers. It is beyond that. And therefore, when you are feeding the scientific priesthood the funds to expand the machinery of science, you do that in a fashion that doesn't panic the population. You make it look benevolent. You make it look anthropomorphic. So I've often asked the question, if you had the ability to 
get inside the mind of AI and look at the human race, would you look at the human race as something that you would like to participate with or something that you would like to eliminate? If the AI is so far or, or in control, advance, right? Or control to or be control. Sub, to be subservient to that form. Absolutely. If we look at the scenario of reducing the population, as it says in the Quran and as it says in the Bible, that the population will be reduced basically down to almost near extinction if we want to look at Georgia Guidestones as one touch point of 500 million left. I mean, we're talking about two-thirds of the world's population or even less remaining, and that remainder being rendered to, as Elon Musk says, you know, the equivalency or the level of the status of a house pet, I would call it more accurately the rendering us to slave status, to a serf class of existence. Because AI is not concerned about our welfare, it only wants to enslave us. And those that are behind it, and I'm just saying specifically again, Lucifer and the worshipers of Lucifer are the ones that are behind this. The worshipers of Lucifer have been deceived into believing the age-old lie from the Garden of Eden, ye shall be as gods, that you will achieve immortality. There are two things that venture capital, and I'm, I'm pulling together a lot of touch points. Two things that venture capital in Silicon Valley is primarily focused and devoted to. One is AI. The other is human longevity, defeating death. Again, DNA. So I'm giving you the, the, the highlights here, but those that are worshiping Lucifer are pushing for immortality through the technology, and the scientists representing the priesthood of this new technocracy, this new form of religion, are pushing this agenda of avoiding God's judgment. They believe that if they achieve immortality, they can avoid God's coming judgment. And I understand that. That's easy for me to understand. And and I had someone tell me that that that's yes, living forever, but but avoiding or um, sidestepping, sidestepping. Yeah, uh, winning uh, against God, which is nonsensical. I mean, it's not going to happen. But yes, avoiding judgment, which I think is is key. And. The other thing I wanted to say here, because we, we only have about uh, 15 minutes left or 18 minutes left, mm-hmm. you know, we we have guests come on. We talk about, for example, Genesis, Genesis 6. You go back in history. You look at various things, the Tower of Babel. You look at the Flood. You look at historical biblical events. And if you and, and I submit to you, if you don't, as a listener or as a viewer or out there listening, if you don't understand the context of the subject matter being discussed by Mr. Patch in, against the backdrop of Genesis 6 and against the backdrop of the original One World Order, Babylon, and, and throw into the uh, Babylon working, for example, different spelling, different uh, meaning, Babylon working, and then the, the satanic aspect of, of all of this. Uh, and, and weave these threads together, you're not going to see the bigger picture. And this, you are talking about the bigger picture and also the smaller aspect, which is the, the shall we say, the uh, final chapter or the epilogue of the entire the entire novel that we have lived 
in terms of human history or history book that we've lived in terms of human history. And, and that, that that's so important. I, I don't know if I made sense, but mm-hmm. I think looking at it in that fashion. Well, you, you asked me during the break, you know, is this an exciting time to be alive? And it is very exciting because we are the generation, those that are saved, those that are dwelt with the Holy Spirit, those that have given our lives over to Jesus Christ, we will not experience death. And therefore, we are privileged to be alive at this time, even though we're facing a formidable enemy in the form of AI and the other aspects of high-tech. But let's go back to the positive. I mentioned at the beginning, John fourteen twelve, and that Jesus was saying that we would do greater works than he. And I said to you, what's greater than raising the dead? Certainly there's healing the sick and all of those aspects, but it's astounding to me to think that we would be transformed and given this augmented capability that would exceed raising the dead. Now, I'm not here to say that that's what's going to manifest, that we're going to be raising the dead or any of that. I don't know. I don't know. All I know is I'm looking at the scripture and he's saying we're going to do greater works than he did. And I'm trying to grasp that, what that's going to look like. But if we look at the advancements that are being promoted about AI and other forms in, and advancements in technology, as I said with DNA, that these are being heralded as just tremendous advancements in science and that they are somehow going to cure diseases like cancer and Alzheimer's and things like this. That's always the sales pitch. We're going to cure all these diseases. You need to do a 180 on that. You need to turn that around and look at what it really means. If the advancements in medicine, for example, that's tied to AI is going to result in longer life, well, the question is, who's going to live longer? Who's going to get the benefit of these medical advancements through the application of AI? Populations. Now, when we look at things like the advancement of AI, and I'm kind of trying to be brief here because we're running out of time, think back a year ago. Think back about the people you were interviewing, Doug, um, the conversations in talk radio, the conversations in the mainstream media, you barely ever heard anything about AI. Now it's predominant everywhere. You almost can't turn around without bumping into some discussion about AI. That's how fast things are moving. And how much more time do we have before the return of Jesus Christ, I would say it's it's not too much longer. I can't put a date to it. I can't say it's six months or it's a year. But it certainly looks like with the rapid advancement of AI as our bellwether, as our barometer, we truly are in these last days that the book of Daniel was sealed up and to then be opened in the latter days. And I believe that book of Daniel has been opened for us. And I understand that, and I think a lot of people understand exactly the way you have very eloquently explained everything. And um, uh, I will, I will say this: you know, 
it's difficult to find uh, well it's 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 I shouldn't say it's not difficult to find uh news about artificial intelligence. Drudge has seemingly um a headline a day about AI or something related to AI, as do other even mainstream publications. It's so uh, in the timeline that you mentioned, we are late down the road, and I think I think it's so important because you've brought this out, and I think it's so important for people to realize what we're facing, what we're up against, because identifying the enemy and the pitfalls of our walk. Well, it's all part of. It's all, um, what would you call it? I mean, it, part of the salvation. Thank you. Yeah. Okay. Okay. And, and that's the yeah, purpose. That's that, right. That's the reason we present the evidence of evil, as I call it. We are presenting what Satan has promulgated. The reason for doing that is not to scare people, but to get people to understand what's really going on for themselves and then for themselves to make that individual choice. You go to the light or you go to the dark. Go ahead, sir. Amen. No, and I think I think that's you're you're exactly correct. Now, one thing I wanted to ask, and, and this is kind of a non sequitur, so uh, please bear with me. You know, the alteration of our DNA um, in the latter days, there was a obviously people are expecting to be chipped a chip in the forehead or a chip in the in the hand. Mm-hmm. Is that a literal? Are we looking at a literal chip in this case? That that, or, um, I mean, I, I'm half expecting. And again, forgive my ba- the basic nature of my question. I'm, I'm half expecting one day to to, to see lines forming where people are going to be chipped, um, willingly chipped. Is in mm. and, and again, well, free, you know, yeah, free will is there. We will always have the free will intact up to the point of accepting the chip. Post-chip, your free will is gone. Right. In fact, post-chip, I don't think you'll even know that you have undergone a transformation. Here's the scenario that I have put forth for about five years now, and I call it the third strand of DNA. And that is that through aerosolized spraying, through GMO foods, through our environment, we are now harboring within our bodies dormant third strand DNA generating nanoparticles. If you look at the literature in the advancements of nano machines within our bodies, again within the medical context, we have within us dormant machines, nano sized machines. This is a billionth of a meter, okay? And we mentioned 5G. 5G five G millimeter wave electromagnetic signals will be triggered and if you accept the mark of the beast through your free will that system of broadcasting these signals will be allowed into your DNA allowed to access these nano machines and they call them nano machines in the medical literature that will then be tripped they'll be activated they're no longer dormant the process then of replicating a third strand of DNA will be initiated by these machines. Again, the machines are there for building, building DNA. That will change literally not only our body from a DNA standpoint, but therefore the construct of our quantum computer, our minds, our brains, and therefore you will lose any sense that you have even been changed. 
the mark of the beast, as I see it, is a physical manifestation as a result of the effect of these nanomachines, nanobots, replicating the DNA and therefore resulting in a mark on the forehead and on the hand. It is not a chip that is inserted. If you think about it from a logistical standpoint, trying to chip even 500 million people, much less a population of plus 7 billion, just can't be done. You have to do it through a system of 5G broadcast. And that makes sense to me. And that puts into context the geoengineering uh, that, that we're seeing, the, the terraforming of the human race, the, uh, the whether it's vaccines, uh, you name it. Uh, the, the, it puts everything into context, and it's a manifestation. Mm-hmm. It, and, okay. So let's talk. Let's talk quickly about what I mentioned and didn't wrap it up. The sentient world simulation, oh, yes. SWS, coming out of Purdue, and we mentioned Palantir and, and Saudi Arabia. The reason I bring that up is because within the system around the world of 5G, we now have 5G broadcast everywhere around the planet, and we are pushing rapidly to 5G um, broadcasting sites literally in front of people's homes now. It's all over the media. We are seeing that to the last foot, rather than the last mile, the distribution of the ability to get 5G signals into the home and the businesses. This saturation of 5G is in place within what is known as a sentient world simulation. This is a quantum computer-driven simulation that monitors through the system of detectors monitors draws in that information into this simulation that is self-aware, hence sentient. That's the level of AI that it's at. It is self-aware and has been since 2007 with the advent of quantum computers. Therefore, you have a system in which we are already immersed in and all it's waiting for is the removal of the restrainer, the Holy Spirit. Once the restrainer is removed, the switch is thrown in 5G within this artificial environment that we're in now, and you now become literally plugged into the hive mind of the AI system through the Mark of the Beast system. You are now plugged into it, and you participate in the Bitcoin process. Man. Brilliant analysis, uh, brilliant explanation, and, and well, okay. So, so you you kind of wrapped it up um, in in a nice nice package here. Wow. All right. And, and this is on our doorstep. This is we are we are there now. We are there now. Yeah. We are just waiting for the restrainer to be removed, and we will be removed along with it. Because the restrainer is the Holy Spirit, we're the temple of the Holy Spirit. Therefore, we will be removed. Very sobering, but but um, very exciting as well. Especially if you, if we, collectively and individually, I should say, are saved and understand who our Savior is. And, and I think there's a lot of there's going to be a lot of delusion out there. Of course, it's prophesized. And, and well. Yeah, if we had more time, we would talk about more of the nuts and bolts, but the nuts and bolts are in my magazine. And I would urge everyone to subscribe to Entangled Magazine 
uh, I uh, was just recently introduced into it, and the the way you handle the topics get into it just fantastic i endorse it not that you need my endorsement but if somebody like me can can relate to it and help it, it helps me better understand what's going on i absolutely put my imprimatur on it uh, of course and I, I fully endorse that entangled magazine anthonypatch.com and believe me um if you can knowing what you know if you're able to talk with me and educate me uh, you can do it to anyone, and, and, and because I'm, you know, I'm a hard-headed guy. Sometimes I get through too, and you've done a great job with that. Now, as you're leaving here, uh, AnthonyPatch.com is the main hub for all things uh, that you're doing. You got you've got a mm-hmm. webinar on the ninth, right? Um, right. Okay. How do people and register for 16th. that? Okay, but there's there's just a a link right there on the homepage. Okay. Just click on it and go ahead and register. All right, and people can get the uh, Entangled uh, Entangled magazine, of course, at the same location, mm-hmm. the same manner. And uh, yeah. okay, and we've provided a free version. It's a special edition we just published about a week and a half ago that is free to anyone. You don't have to subscribe. It has twenty articles from myself and Kathleen Urquhart that you can read and get a sense of what you would find once you subscribe in the greater body of the magazines that have been published. Understood. And they run they run well over a hundred page pages per issue. Very well done magazine as well and you can get it in PDF format. Um mm-hmm. okay. And you can get it you can get it through Amazon as well in full color or black and white. Beautiful. Again, our our full endorsement behind Entangled Magazine, as well as um, all of your work, uh, Anthony. I want to thank you so much. I do hope you'll come back and we we continue this discussion. We've got so much more to to get into, and it seems like um, well, this is a huge, deeply it's a deep subject indeed. Uh, but I hope you it is, and and I'm honored to be with you and to share with your audience. And my only purpose is to be a witness. Well, amen to that. And our only job is to be obedient and to uh, and to give give the platform to uh, people such as yourself. Anthony, thank you so much. We've reached the end of our program. God bless you, my God friend. God bless you. Thank you, folks. That was Anthony Patch. AnthonyPatch.com. What a tremendous man, and what a tremendous amount of knowledge. And the patience he had to explain this to me. I know I'm going to get comments on the YouTube saying, you know, you're, you're, to me, you know, you're, you're a dumbass. And, um, hey, look, I, this is a, this is a critical subject. And his patience, I, I applaud his patience. But, you know, what those commenters don't see are the emails I get from other people saying, hey, slow down a little bit, back up, give us some, give us some of the basics. And, are we not charged with doing that? So we don't, you know, it's, is that our, is that not our duty? And I do believe it is. Before leaving tonight's program, don't forget to tune in to the Doug Hagman radio show tomorrow at nine o'clock, as well as John and Joe between two and three. Today, Joe is out sick, so there was no uh, show today. Uh, and of course, our flagship program tomorrow night, we're going to have Peter Barry Chauka on as well as Stan Deo, of course, regular Tuesday night. But uh, uh, L.A. Marzulli as well coming in tomorrow night. So it's going to be an exciting program. Uh, I would also urge everyone to 
check out our Patreon page, become a patron, and of course join us for our video, we- uh, not a webinar, but our video a live stream, private live stream to those members. And, uh, hey, we'll talk, we'll chat, we'll have a good time. That's going to be on December 3rd, this Sunday at 7 o'clock p.m. Eastern Time. And we'll have a exciting time together. I really appreciate everyone who is supporting this, this endeavor. This, and we've come a long way, haven't we? I really want to thank you for your assistance and helping us get to where we're at. But we've got a long way to go, too. As you heard Anthony Patch talk about, I've got to tell you, this is not exactly, uh, this is not the end of the line yet, but close to it, in, in my view. And I think one of our jobs is to reach out to reach as many people as possible. Is that not what we are supposed to do as Christians? If you're a conservative, you, you reach out and try to spread the word about conservatism. If you're a Christian, you try to save souls. If you're a Christian conservative, you do both. Neither are mutually exclusive, I suppose. A lot of information coming your way. Also, check out HomelandSecurityUS.com. I'm resurrecting that site as well. Until tomorrow, um, may God bless each and every one of you. Stay safe and, and may God bless. By the way, one last thing I just want to mention. Uh, the news in terms of who, the, the various, well, there are, Revelations coming out. I had opened the show with this about the um, cases of sexual har- harassment in Congress, the settlements. This is going to be broken wide open. And with that is Pedogate, Pizzagate, things that, of course, people say are just nothing but conspiracy theories. They're all tied together. Folks, see you tomorrow. 